AK, sell narcotics, I step my dollars up to Bill Gates, push our limits, you looking timid, need to back off, puck ass cops, some crackers, want us with our black off, thug like niggas, is 96, I want the gang bang, few years later, I'm really from it, we were still kids, crack off nigga, I'm squeezing empty till the shell break, fuck my image, I need to drop, I need the blank face. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy, Jordan. And this is Desmond. And welcome to episode 181 of Two Black Nerds. Yeah. That's right. It's that time once again for us to bring you our opinions and hot takes on all things fandom, pop culture, and entertainment. As always, you can find Two Black Nerds wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a friendly rating and comment to share your support. And of course, join in on the conversation each and every week by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Two Black Nerds. We appreciate that. Love y'all. And let's not forget to mention, we have merchandise that's available now at twoblacknerds.com. Go check out our Two Black Nerds Forever collection, inspired by Black Panther Wakanda Forever. We got t-shirts, crew neck city stickers, mugs, and tote bags, so go ahead and place those orders right now. On today's show, we'll be reviewing the closing chapters from a number of hit television shows, including the final two episodes of The Mandalorian Season 3. Also, we'll discuss the second half and Season 2 finale of ABC sitcom Abbott Elementary. Plus, we'll share our thoughts on the series finale of the FX crime drama Snowfall. But before we get to any and all of that, we're kicking off this week's podcast with a review of the fifth installment in the Evil Dead film series, Evil Dead Rise. What's up, sis? I had the most beautiful dream. It was the perfect day. All I could think about was how much I wanted to cut you all open and then climb inside your bodies so that we could stay one happy family. (laughs) When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother. What is this, Danny? I found it. What will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Open up now. You don't look so good, Mom. Nothing. Big ol' kiss from you won't fix. I'm getting us out of here, I promise. You'd be a good mom someday, honey bath. Oh yeah? You know how to lie to kids. <laughs> Mom? Mommy's with the maggots now. Will be. 
Now, this movie is written and directed by Lee Cronin, and it's starring Lily Sullivan, Alyssa Sutherland, Morgan Davies, Gabrielle Eccles, and Nell Fisher. So the Evil Dead franchise has been sort of enduring pop culture for a little bit over 40 years now. It's been around for quite a while. This is the first Evil Dead film in about 10 years. 10 years ago, there was a reimagining film that came out from director Fetty Alvarez. It was the first film in the Evil Dead franchise to not be directed by Sam Raimi, who we know sort of ushered in this new era of horror with the Evil Dead franchise. And so now, 10 years later, they decided to revisit this well-known property in the horror landscape and make another film. But this is also coming off of the heels of a pretty successful television show that was on Stars for a few seasons, Ash vs. Evil Dead, which brought back Bruce Campbell in the titular role as Ash, and also Sam Raimi was on board as producer. But again, Evil Dead has been around for quite a while, and this movie was actually slated to initially go on HBO Max, but the new leadership in that company decided to give it a theatrical release, and it had its world premiere a few weeks ago at the South by Southwest Film Festival, and I know we both were eagerly anticipating this new iteration and this new sort of reimagining of Evil Dead, considering our fandom of that franchise, and so with all of that out the way, man, I will pass it over to you. What did you think about this new Evil Dead movie, Evil Dead Rise? You know, it's also interesting that I think, uh, uh, you know, last year the Evil Dead video game even came out and, and uh, it, I feel like within the past couple of years, uh, they've been ramping up something uh, in within the Evil Dead world, again, from the video game, from uh, Sam Raimi being a part of Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness, from Bruce Campbell uh, uh, speaking when the game came out and being a big part I think of that. And then the Evil Rise or Evil Dead Rise trailer comes out and I'm like, oh no, they're really doing something right now. This 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 thing is uh this movie is in franchises on the horizon of new beginnings, it looks like. So man, the trailer looked amazing. I could not wait to step into the theater and watch this film, man. Evil Dead Rise is a lot, a lot, a lot of fun for me, um, in particular. First Evil Dead as a franchise, after after seeing this movie, it has to be one of the most consistent horror franchises ever, <laughs> if not the one at the top. Of course, you think about all the horror franchises and movies you know, usually there's only a couple good ones, right? Think about how many really good Friday the 13th there are. There's only like maybe two good Friday the 13th movies. Um, there's a decent amount of Halloween movies, but there's a lot of bad Halloween movies too, you know? And so coming in, uh, it, man, after watching this film, Evil Dead to me has to be just one of those ones that every time they come out with something, man, it, it seems to be something of substance or something that people can, can, can latch onto. And this is no exception. I enjoyed every bit um, of this film. I'm, I missed the first 10 minutes. I have to give that caveat. My phone broke and I have to go get my phone fixed. <laughs> and so I've traveled to the movie like 10 10 minutes late so I, I i do know what i missed though which which is important um and this 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 movie first is it's it's a great time i think i it's, it's a lot of the things i wanted to see out of it man there's a lot of um things that comes with evil dead that you just expect that uh to happen and i think i was uh rewarded with 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 some of those things um throughout the film but what makes this movie different than a lot of the evil dead films is it doesn't take place in a cabin in the woods <laughs> like the original uh two did at least i guess and the 2013 uh remake with Fetty alvarez but it instead takes place in the city right um and and it's about something different where 
in the 2013 uh, version, that that one's a little different as well, where it's it's about uh, everybody being in the cabin because um, there's a young lady who's addicted to drugs, right? And so I think this is even seeks to add another layer. This movie is about motherhood and a little bit of sisterhood as well, <laughs> but motherhood um, and and what it like what it looks like uh, between these two sisters going through two different walks of life within their motherhood um in in the battle for survival and the undead and what that looks like man and again i just had a blast it's it's very well shot cinematography is exceptional the acting to me is through the roof uh not through the roof but i thought it was tremendous uh especially when you're dealing with young actors and actresses um i think they just did a great job uh, across the board gabrielle Eccles to me was like the child standout here i thought she did really good um but uh Alyssa sutherland as the the matriarch right the mom is really like the oh no you you came here um and you did a great job as the main i guess deadite or or evil um in this movie outside of that i love the gore in this film i i would argue maybe that 2013 still has more blood but I think uh, uh, the way the tension is built in this film, that the blood <laughs> that we even get in this film, uh, uh, it's 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 no, you know, it, it doesn't fall short at all. You're still going to get a ton of blood in this film. You're still going to get uh, a lot of those those moments that also make you laugh in this movie. Right. The original Evil Dead was a little bit funny. And the 2013 one was like almost not funny at all. But I feel like this movie finds a, a nice happy medium between what Sam Raimi was doing and what Fetty Alvarez was doing um, to make you uh, have a good time. Man, Alyssa Sutherland was having such a good time as the Deadite. No matter what she was saying, I feel like I was having a good time too because I don't know. It's just it's 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 just one of those uh, one of those things that I think when you watch it and you understand what Evil Dead is, you get what they're trying to do here, man. But overall, very much enjoyed this film. I had I had a blast in a the theater. And I actually can't wait to see it again. Like I said, I missed the beginning, which made the end make more sense. But I'm I'm very interested uh, to see what a potential new franchise for for this property looks like, man. Because they're doing a good job so far, and so and I think anytime I have as much fun as I did in the theater watching this movie, then there there might be some more things to explore. So I have to see what they do uh, from here on out. So one of the rare things you can say about the Evil Dead franchise is that, in my opinion, there are no bad entries. Everyone brings something new and delicious to the table. The first one obviously kickstarted a new sort of element and era of horror. There was a lot of slapstick comedy infused in just the way that that movie was brought to life. And, of course, Bruce Campbell played a huge, huge role in that and just the lack of resources that they had on that film. Evil Dead 2, which is superior to the first one, but it's really like the same movie, but they just had more money and more resources to just go back to the drawing board and kind of do the same movie again, but make it, again, more hilarious, more fun, use more effects in that film. Army of, Darkman, Ar Army of Darkness just takes a completely different route. It's almost like a hard reboot of the entire series. The reimagining that came out 10 years ago, as you said, was very much more a serious interpretation of that of that franchise and of that, that mythology that's been built across um, all these different decades. And now Evil Dead Rise, again, brings something entirely new to the table while still maintaining all of the things that you expect to see out of an Evil Dead movie. It's stylish. It's absolutely brutal. And it's really relentless once the film gets going. And, and this is not for the faint of heart. I know a lot of people that listen to our show are not fans of horror. This is not the movie to enter into as, <laughs> as somebody who might be a novice to horror because this is hardcore shit and i think that 
all across my life, I've seen so many horror movies that sometimes it's really easy to become desensitized to the amount of blood that you see, the amount of gore, the violence. And I felt that way in a few points of this movie, but there were even a couple of times where I was even beginning beginning to become a little queasy and, and it got me a little uncomfortable at several points in this movie because they do some things that are just so gnarly and so crazy. Just the the imagination behind all of these sequences that they put together was was really kind of awe-inspiring and it left me thinking about the movie long after we left the theater. And also, outside of like the things that you expect out of an Evil Dead movie, what I really love about this movie and really the entire franchise is just how straightforward they are. They always get right into the story. They don't waste any precious time with a lot of world building. We really just meet the characters. We kind of understand what their circumstances are, why they are where they are, and then we just get into the shit. And I always love that about these movies, that they just don't waste any time and they know how to dive right in. And I think even when you start to see sort of the the, the inciting incident in this movie, because one of the hallmarks of the Evil Dead franchise is sort of the same things, the Deadites, the Necronomicon, which is, you know, the Book of the Dead, which really causes all hell to break loose. All that stuff is there. But I think that the Necronomicon in this movie might have been the most scary book of all because of just mm -hmm. all the imagery, which is like still seared into my head and just the stuff that you see. It's like, wait a second, this might be the most intimidating demonic force in any of these movies that we that we have seen and that was absolutely the case because once the demonic presence takes over Alyssa Sutherland's character who you see all throughout the trailers is the one that's primarily possessed by this demon I mean she's just relentless and she's a force of nature and and really can't be stopped and it becomes more and more horrific as the movie progresses and as you noted the fact that this film gets away from the the cabin in the woods nature of what we're used to and goes into a Los Angeles apartment introduces just an entirely new level of creativity that we haven't really gotten to explore with this franchise. It allows for new levels of gore that we haven't really seen. There's closets and bed sheets and, and, and forks and knives and cheese graters. Like it's all sorts of stuff <laughs> that you normally wouldn't have access to that all of a sudden become instruments to all of the demonic crazy shit that's happening from scene to scene. And there's also a ton of really, really cool shots here. I was just kind of marveling at the at the yeah. filmmaking prowess of, of the filmmakers behind this movie. There's a sequence in here that's sort of shot from the perspective of an apartment door peephole. And it's just like a, a prolonged sequence. And I was just sitting there like, oh, that's really, really cool. Or even like the extreme close-ups that they had or the use of the, the split field diopter shots. And there was even like a visual cue to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Like there's so many really, really cool mm -hmm. things here that aren't hammered over the head. They're not done so in a gratuitous nature. Like they're just really quick flashes of, I think, brilliance all throughout this movie that just elevate the filmmaking style on top of just all the scares and the frights that you get and that you experience and then you get some really incredible lighting and production design and, and the sound design also is on a different level it's just all coming together and it coalesces to a really really fun and enjoyable experience and i know the theater that we saw it in which was a packed theater friday night people had a blast you could tell all the folks that were super scared scared and you could tell like the true fans of mm -hmm. the franchise who got everything that they wanted to see um it wasn't a perfect experience for me though there are a couple of drawbacks that i just do want to call attention to um one is and i don't want to get too much into the details of it but if you've watched any evil dead movie you know that there's never there's never really just one dead eye there's multiple dead eyes mm -hmm. right and so that remains the case here in this film and I think that 
what I wanted a little bit more out of some of the other Deadites that we see is a little bit more of a personality. Mm-hmm. I think Alyssa Sutherland's Deadite totally rules the movie. You get all sorts of delicious stuff out of her and just that performance. You can tell there's a ton of personality out of her. The other ones, not so much. They kind of come and go very quickly. I wanted to see a little bit more personality out of, out of them. And then the only other gripe that I had with this movie was sort of the way that it bookends, which is the way, you know, yeah. it sort of begins and ends. Um, just kind of felt like a... I don't know. It just kind of felt like it was shoehorned into the film. It didn't really do anything for me. Mm-hmm. It certainly explained how the book and the presence and the demons sort of sort of transport from one family to another. But I don't know if it was completely necessary. It was just kind of yeah. one of those things to just like throw you into the movie. But it didn't really do anything for me. But outside of that, this is a great movie, a great, great time. And again, if you're a true fan of horror, then there, there's really no reason why you wouldn't enjoy this. I do want to just quickly ask you, um, we're only about four months into the into the year, but we've gotten quite a few horror movies. We've gotten things like Megan and Knock at the Cabin, Scream 6, even to a certain extent, others like Bull is Afraid, which is more of like a, a nightmare horror comedy. But it does have mm-hmm. horror elements. Um, would Evil Dead Rise be the best horror movie of the year? So far to you, do you think it's at the top of the list? I I think so. It's pretty close, probably between this and Scream. I really like Scream. Um, And they both, to be honest, they both need (laughs) rewatches at some point soon. But right now, again, just coming off the high of the weekend and how much I enjoyed that film, man, I'm going to go with Evil Dead Rise for now. Um, it, it might change again throughout the year. It might change on a Scream rewatch. Shoot, it could change on a Bowls of Frey rewatch, you know. But right now, I'm, I'm going to go with Evil Dead Rise as being my, my favorite horror film so far of 2023. Yeah, and it's also an interesting place when a lot of these films and franchises or newly minted franchises, even with like Megan, because we know we're, that's going to get a second installment. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is genre bending now. You know, things aren't just like isolated right. to horror anymore. They're incorporating a lot of other genres as we just said, Bo is Afraid has a lot of comedy into it, um, but there are sort of horror elements. Of course, Ari Aster very much has that background with his previous two films. Um, even Megan is like a sci- sci-fi sort of dystopian comedy horror to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Like it, it's more, yeah. it leans more comedy. So um, it's a really interesting year that it's shaping up to be, and I can't wait to see what the what the rest of the year holds. But I would also, so far, put Evil Dead Rise at the top of the list just because of not only the legacy of the franchise, but just how true it stays to what it is while still giving us completely new flavors um, with this new installment. So folks, those are all of our thoughts on evil dead rise. If you've checked out this movie, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition to the TV side of things and catch up with a bunch of finales that just occurred over the past week. And first we have to talk about the series finale and season six of the FX crime drama snowfall. Franklin, what do you want? I want to marry V. Have this baby. I want the life I was so close to having, I could taste her. Till they ripped it away. You were supposed to be out. Out. I built an empire. Starting back in zero. That ain't gonna happen. We know exactly who we dealing with. If you don't give back what you stole, it's gonna get real bad for you. Swallow your pride and make peace with your family. Cause this isn't good for anyone. Told you the gloves had to come off. Franklin is going to war. He's trying to bring this entire operation crashing down. What exactly do you need? Proof. The CIA has been selling cocaine in the United States. Even after all of this, 
you want to think America still cares about you. It ever occur to you this is exactly what they want? For us to wipe each other out? of the rest of our lives. This is about survival. Do it. End this shit right now. Now, this series is created by John Singleton, Eric Amadio and Dave Andron, and is starring Dam- Damson Idris, Carter Hudson, Sergio Perez Manchada, Isaiah John, Amin Joseph, Angela Lewis, Gail Bean, and Michael Hyatt. So Snowfall has been on the air for the better part of like almost seven years now. It's been one of the mainstay tentpole shows on FX for quite a while. Um, we know that John Singleton, legendary director who we lost a couple of years ago, was was really you know sort of the driving force, the driving creative force behind the series and, and brought this show to life. And it's really been focusing on the birth of the crack epidemic in, in the 1980s, specifically on the West Coast in Los Angeles, and detailing sort of the rise of power with our main character, Franklin Saint, and just everything that he's undergone. And again, this sort of fits within a, a lexicon of shows that, we, that we've become quite accustomed to in the television mm-hmm. landscape over the past 20 years. There's a ton of crime shows that we have often referenced that many people are watching and re-watching, things like The Wire or The Sopranos or Boardwalk Empire. This yep. is obviously a very very notable sweet spot, I think, for television. And so Snowfall sort of comes in at the tail end of that particular era, but again, does something a little bit different because we don't get that many black fronted shows really, you know, taking place within a certain time period that also has a primarily black cast and black creators and filmmakers. And also, again, the fact that it focuses on the crack epidemic, which hasn't been explored to the same extent as maybe some other sort of cultural touch points that we often acknowledge and recognize. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Snowfall just met its end. It it finally wrapped up all of its storytelling again after six seasons of being on the air, which is which is quite a while. And um, I know that we, we, we briefly talked about it maybe about a year ago with season five and we sort of knew the season six was going to start to wrap things up but now the series finale has come and gone and we certainly checked that out to just catch up with everything that was going to occur with franklin Sade and all the people around him but with all of that out the way before we talk about any of the specific details i just want to get your overall thoughts what did you think about snowfall season six this year uh season six was fine man i think in a uh, of course ending shows will always 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 be the hardest thing to do i think for any particular show, man. Again, you can start strong. You can have a strong middle, but that ending, man, to be something satisfactory for everybody to chew on, you know, for years to come, for everybody to want to revisit, I think is just so important of a thing. And um, I, I, I think Snowfall did it justice. I do. I think it, I think they did fine. Not everything in season six works for me, right? But I think overall, the overarching themes, the way things ended, what where some things went, it worked for me. Um, and I think this will for sure be a show that we continue to talk about uh, um, for time. Uh, uh, yeah, for, for a long time after this. Um, and season six, man, there was a lot going down. And some of it was shocking, to be honest. And a lot of those things I enjoyed uh, because I think, you know, a snow like snowfall, six seasons is a lot. And that being said, they could have easily done something to make them go out comfortably. And I, I feel like they didn't do that. And I have to commend them for that because so far is a show that 
has been throwing, you know, somewhat some punches and some swings at some things. And I will I will always commend them for that. There was the episode where everyone was high. There's another episode with a tiger in it. You know what I'm saying? They've always, I think, tried to experiment every now and then to try to shake things up. And I think season six had uh, uh, maybe not anything in terms of super artistic weird things going on in season six but in terms of story beats i think they 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 took some swings that i enjoyed and so i i think overall season six man uh uh it's a fine finale i think so i think it's a fine finale to the show um and i honestly i think john singleton would be proud of the product that they that they finished on man i think they stayed true to the characters i think they stayed true to what the show was really trying to say and supposed to be about um yeah and overall i think it was a fine experience and a fine watch uh yeah a couple episodes in there i was like oh, i don't think i like this in fact season six probably has one of my like least favorite episodes in it <laughs> it's like episode two or three and i was like dang this might be my least favorite episode like in this series in general but other than that episode man i i found myself uh enjoying week to week and having uh, some pretty good conversations coming out of it, man. So I can't wait to see what the longevity of the show looks like. We'll talk about that stuff later. But I think season six was was fine, in my opinion. Yeah, I've been very vocal about my thoughts uh, of Snowfall over the years. I think that uh, I have not been as big of a fan of this series as maybe other people um, within our circles that we talk to have been. But I do acknowledge and recognize that this show, for me, has certainly had flashes of brilliance. There have absolutely been moments that shocked me, surprised me, and made me look at the show in a different context and say like, oh, that was really, really well executed. That was really well done. I did notably have a very difficult time with the first couple of seasons. It just wasn't totally working for me. Just the structure of the show, it felt a little unfocused and kind of all over the place. But once season three kicked in, which I still think is their best season, everything really snapped into focus. You really started to see Franklin say, assume the, the this new prominence and this new power within the city of Los Angeles and really, you know, throughout the, the entire West Coast operation that he was running. Um, and ever since then, with seasons four, five, and six, it's been somewhat mixed results. I liked four. Season five was a very, very weird watching experience. I think a lot of people watched season <laughs> five and um, it was divisive to say the least in terms of the, the the reaction and the receptivity to that season. But I think a lot of people definitely felt that it lost a lot of its steam and many people were calling for the series to end and were certainly just like, okay, clearly they have nothing else left to do and say, so let's just go ahead and wrap it up. And I think that with season six, they certainly bounced back to a place of being confident in the writing, being confident in the storytelling and bringing a nice divisive um, or excuse me, decisive conclusion to just all of these lingering stories and characters. Because um, it's a pretty large cast when you really think about just all the threads mm-hmm. that the show ties together. And I think that overall, season six was a pretty, pretty decent watch as well. And overall, made it made it all overall a very worthwhile experience in terms of shows that examine drug lords and kingpins and crime, especially within a specific era. And I really, really liked, especially like the, the second half of the season. I think um, just mm-hmm. their, their ability to focus on much, much darker elements and to go into really deep, dark places, especially, again, when you're dealing with already difficult subject matter. I think that they stayed true to what the outcome would be likely for a lot of these people. You know, I don't think that they did anything that was completely outlandish and would make you think like, oh, well, that would never yeah, happen. Um, and it's TV mm-hmm. at the end of the day. There's all, there's, there's always going to be some creative liberties. But I think from a historical context and then just also from the context of like how the show has been built, all of the conclusions for, for many of these characters kind of made sense because they I think they did a good job of setting up those threads either last season or maybe a couple of previous seasons beforehand to get us in a place that just made sense for most of the people involved. And so it was pretty good to me. 
I really liked a couple of these episodes that definitely had me looking at it like, whoa, I didn't didn't necessarily see that coming. And also the resolution of everything went in a different direction that I did not anticipate, which is always mm-hmm. a really good thing, especially if it makes sense. And so um, I do want to just quickly talk about some of these specific details. And so want to send out a warning to people. If you've not watched any of Snowfall, especially season six in the series finale, we're going to spoil a couple of things here because it's just you know important to talk about. And also the show's been out for quite a while. So I think it's fair game at this point. Um, so feel free to spoil away, man. But I really want to just kind of get your thoughts on Franklin's fate at the end of this, you know, the the final yeah. episode of the series spends all of our time primarily with Franklin Saint. He is reeling off of the really crazy and shocking moments of the penultimate episode where we see S- Sissy kill um kill the agent. Um I forget his name off the top of my head. He kills Teddy. She kills Teddy, Teddy and that just sends her in a different place mentally. She is willingly allowing herself to be locked up cuz she just kind of knows it's over. And Franklin is unwilling to accept that fact. You know, he's doing everything that he can to try to get any amount of money that we can see him get to just try to hold on for dear life, you know, at the at the end of this road. But we just kind of see him go on a on a tailspin, you know, really for 60 minutes plus. And and it's it's almost hard to watch, I would say, just seeing like how desperate he becomes, how little of a person he becomes, how much of his former self we just sort of see disappear before our very eyes. I mean, he just becomes almost unrecognizable. I think by the end, both physically and figuratively, like he, he becomes just a different person altogether. He, he's damn near homeless. He's he's, yeah. you know, begging for money. He, he has nothing to his name, you know. And so those final moments of this of the series finale were really poignant, I would say, and, and, and sad and tragic. But what were your thoughts just about seeing, you know, Franklin Saint undergo that really radical transformation from, you know, sort of being at the top of the world for such a long time to hitting the absolute lowest of lows by the end of this whole story? Yeah, I think depressing and, and, and sad and, you know, all of those words make sense for the fate of Franklin, man. This was a kid who was the the most brilliant, you know, of I think the people around him. Um, and he was like, in a lot of ways, he was the smartest. I, I, I almost feel like he was applying. He never went to college, right? But I feel like he was applying collegiate level knowledge to the drug game, right? That he be, had become a part of. He had understood the business and become a drug lord in such a way that made him. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, the 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 man was the he was the Frank Lucas of his community. You know what I'm saying? Like the dude really was him. He was supplying everything, and I think he lived by that sword and also died. He didn't die, but died by that sword as well, right? And and he he the definition of reap what you sow, right? He he was part of the reason why uh, uh, the crack epidemic <laughs> hit in his specific neighborhood and all of those people were affected. And then he feels those repercussions later on down the line as well. He's now a product by the end. He's now a product of that same community. He has to live every day walking in his backyard, seeing crackheads <laughs> on the streets that he probably uh, uh, helped orchestrate their lives as crackhead. And I think that made sense to me for his fate. It made sense that he had to, bathed in the water that he created in this dirty water that he created and i i I think i like that as an ending for him especially in 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 some ways he uh he didn't become a crackhead but in some ways he did um again just turn out to be the person that he created um in his almost homelessness in his brokenness um in, in in all of uh those things man and it's also i mean it always makes sense, right? We seen the sl- his mind slowly crack. When you get that much money stolen from you, I'm sure. 
<laughs> you know, that that all of uh, Franklin is somebody who had become somewhat a provider for his family. Right. And in his mom, his uncle, his auntie and all of those things crumbled in slow motion in front of him. Not only that, but his girlfriend slash wife slash baby mama dipped on him with the baby. <laughs> um, and now, you know, he spent so much time, again, not only looking for, I think, uh, uh, solace and knowing that he could take care of his family. That was a big thing for him, right? He was like, okay, Teddy, just give me half the money. I just need money to take care of my family, low-key. And then when you don't get that, you, uh, I can understand, I get why he snapped. Um, there's a lot of things and a lot of things he worked towards that he, it was no longer in his possession that caused a, a, a spiral. And so I think I think all of that, again, just made sense in, in, in the, the, the heartbeat of the character and where he ended up, man. I think his fate makes sense. I really love the moments between him and Leon by the end, right, where they're both in tears. But Franklin is is fessing up uh, and, and saying, like, Leon, I'm proud of you. And Leon, he knows he can't really do anything about it either. And so he's to see your friend in such a place like this. And I think so fast too, not that I think there was like a two year jump, right. From, from uh, the safe scene into the, where we find him um, in the old house in two years. Yeah. It, it's not a long time, but it is at the same time. And to come back from somewhere and to see somebody in that state, it's almost like, I feel I've, I've almost had very similar interactions of moving, moving away, going to college and you come back to Kansas city and you see these people and you're like, man, <laughs> like you we used to be homeboys you know what i'm saying like you used to be uh uh shoot you used to be one of my best friends and now to see you in the state man it hurts because i also know i can't do much a lot of it is mental and a lot of it is also structural franklin thought the cops were outside looking for him nobody's looking for you anymore bro it's been two years you know that stuff is over so i don't know it's just a very interesting i think way to put that character uh, to rest by, I think, again, putting him in a kind of a chamber of his own hell that he created. Um, and so I, I didn't necessarily see it coming, but when I seen it, I was like, I think I like this. And I think this makes sense for the character that we see. And I think kudos has to be given to the writers of the show because we're, we're so accustomed to seeing a lot of these crime kingpins a part of these different series over the years. They meet their demise either by murder or by ending up in jail. That's that's typically the outcome. Like you're going to end up dead or in jail. And I think that we all just kind of assume that that would be the case for Franklin. But this is a lot more tragic because there is a twisted irony to it. Because at the end of this road, at the end of this journey for him, when we see him in the state that he's in in the final moments of this finale, he ends up just like his father was before his father reached that place of sort of reclamation and reconciliation. You know, his father was a recovering alcoholic and had no money, no resources, nothing to his name. And Franklin hated that. He detested that about his father. That was mm -hmm. one of the, the hallmarks of the series for all these years. Franklin didn't drink because he didn't want to end up like his father. And then you see how he ends up at the end of the series, and it's like... Wow, we we oftentimes become a lot more like our parents than we like to admit. As much as we might prolong that fact or that that idea, it it, it comes around maybe mm -hmm. even two or threefold at the end of the journey. And so when you see him in the state that he's in, and, and the fact that it reflects so much of what his father was for such a long time, it's quite frightening to see. And and as you said, he is a product of, product of his own making within the community that he helped not only build but destroy simultaneously at the same time. And it's just like. It's really it's really crazy stuff when you you just understand that, you know, this was a guy who fought to the bitter end. And there's that idea of like he has his freedom, quote unquote. You know, he always he always harped on that idea that he would be free. He 
wouldn't allow himself to be constrained or, 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 or weighed down by, you know, what society wanted out of him, by the, the idea of just working for another person. Like he was going to create and set up his own path for freedom. And as much as it sounds kind of crazy, he did do that at the end, although it's a very flawed idea because like how much of freedom do you really have when you have no money, you have no home, you have no resources, you have no friends, no family, like you have literally nothing left. Like you pretty much don't even have your sanity left. So that idea of freedom is, is very much flawed by the end of this. But those were like the first lines that he under, uh, uttered in the, in the series premiere, you know, all those years ago. He mm-hmm. wanted freedom from it all. You know, that was kind of his his idea and what he wanted to escape. And it looks different, I think, than he imagined. But there there is a certain sense of not being able to to conform to, to having end, end up in, in jail or dead or whatever the case may be. What 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 could have been his his ultimate fate if he had chosen to go down a different route? Um, there were a lot of shocking moments this season. Like I mentioned earlier, Sissy killing Teddy was, was crazy. Also just like Jerome's death was like a pretty big moment, you know, Mm -hmm. seeing Franklin lose his uncle, the the guy that was next to him this entire time. Did you have a particularly shocking moment for you that stood out like above the rest of them? Or, or I mean, even between those two really seminal moments, which, you know, sort of stood out to you Mm -hmm. more is like, I didn't see that coming. I couldn't have predicted that, 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 that would go that way. Man, to be honest, I've seen a lot, a couple of those things coming. Specifically, Jerome's death was very foreshadowed to me. Um, there's the the scene where he's uh, uh, at his boy's garage, the mechanic's garage, and people are going back and forth uh, in a car, clearly because Jerome is there wanting some kind of smoke or scoping out um, where Jerome is. Between that and Jerome literally telling Louis that he doesn't want to be in the drug game anymore, I was like, man, Jerome... <laughs> Uh-oh, this, I don't think he's going to last very long. So that one wasn't as shocking um, to me, I don't think. But I, I think a moment that was kind of shocking was the the torture of Teddy was a little shocking. And it's it's not even the, the concept of torture. It's the way they tortured him. The grease on the chest is insane. It is one of the most inhumane, I think, forms of torture I've ever seen. Like, I, we've watched a lot of movies <laughs> and a lot of TV shows. It's very rare you see something like that where somebody's literally cooking grease on a stove and pouring it on their chest. It's 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 really crazy and, and, and fucked up um, when you think about it, because, yeah, it's it's literally you're melting somebody's flesh. I can't. Like I waterboard him or something, you know what I'm saying? Like melting his chest is crazy. So I think that was one of the more shocking moments um, for me in terms of story beats, just seeing how dark of a place that Franklin has gotten into. Okay, I will add to that. This is like a one-two punch. The killing of Teddy's dad was kind of crazy as well. I I don't mm. think I've seen it coming in that way. I, I I knew Franklin was threatening Teddy. I knew that something was... I thought he was going to hold him hostage for a little bit because it's even between uh, Veronique's mom and Teddy's, Teddy's dad. They were having cool little interactions. She was trying to get him to dance. And then Franklin just kind of... Slits the nigga's throat. You know what I'm saying? Kind of just, just, just ends him. And so I think that was a really big shocking moment. So probably between that and the torture of Teddy, those are two like really surprising, I think, moments for me to show, I think, how crazy Franklin had gotten, how me, how the dude has lost his marbles. And I think, you know, the killing, the killing of, of Teddy's dad was one, but and then the torture of Teddy himself was another. And I think they kind of go hand in hand with shocking moments for me. 
Yeah, they they veered again darker, much much darker this this season. Um, outside of like Sissy killing um, Teddy in that moment, which in the way that it happened just kind of came out and it was so quick in how it happened. Pretty wild. But I think um, mm-hmm. earlier in the season, seeing what Louis experienced and that was almost an element of torture that she was exposed to. She was about to get mm-hmm. pretty much gang raped in that in that scene before Jerome. Yeah. The same episode that Jerome wow. ultimately met his end, but just that whole preceding mm-hmm. section, I was looking at that like, wow, we are we are starting to really stretch yeah. like. This is kind of getting really wild here. Please, please do not go through with this. But I think that they, um, I think that they walked a fine line between showing like this is extremely brutal and it's very difficult to watch, but also not going all the way with it because at a certain point you just don't want to mm-hmm. see something like that. Like I, I, I don't want to watch any show that has that sort certain type of element in it where we're talking about raping women on camera and stuff. Like I just don't want to see that. Um, but the fact that they toyed with it was also just like very frightening, right? And it, it was just like one of those things that continued to raise the stakes of the series. And you just see how that impacts everybody and like the fact that Franklin has to, you know, sort of like put aside all of his differences, you know, just for the for the greater good of trying to figure this whole thing out and eliminate his enemies. Like that was a crazy mm-hmm. sequence. So yeah, this season definitely had a lot of moments that were just like, wow, I didn't expect them to go there. Um, as we wrap up here, I just want to, you know, quickly get your thoughts on what do you think the legacy of Snowfall will ultimately be? You know, again, sort of pairing it against the lexicon of just like other shows that we've gotten over the years of of crime focused shows especially when we look at an anti-hero really is our main protagonist somebody that we're not really supposed to root for but at the same time you do kind of root for because you want to see how far they can really go with it and you also know that their circumstances are kind of created outside of their own control and so they're you know really working within the the confines of what they have at their disposal but you know what are your overall thoughts about just like where the show will fall just in, in in the larger general discourse and just this legacy and how how it will hold hold up over the years. Yeah, I I really love Snowfall, man. Um, th- thinking about these years that we've been watching it as a a unit, um, between the tweets and you know discussions, it's a really good, I think, addition to all of those shows that you're talking about: Boardwalk Empire, Sopranos, The Wire. I don't think it broke TV like like some of those shows did, but I do think it's a it is a great addition to add to those conversations of antiheroes of great drug shows of of good shoot of good performances man this dude damson interest came in and made a name for himself off of one really one role if you if you want to get into it and talk about it man and i think even beyond snowfall the the franklin saint (laughs) will live i think beyond the show as a legacy but i think I think this 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 show. I, I think it will be in, in in those conversations of again, maybe not breaking TV, right? Like Breaking Bad and Sopranos and The Wire. But I think when people bring up those shows, there are moments in in Snowfall that people will also add to that conversation and talk about as well. And I think that cements the legacy as as well. But again, between the show and between Damson Idris as Franklin said, I think it will live on. Not only that, just like some random spinoff coming right between Leon and Wanda of them. I don't know, doing hip hop <laughs> or something like that. They're, they're entering the rap game. And so um, I, I think there will be ties, right, made to Snowfall, between Snowfall and that show that, that will keep the conversation going for sure. But I think, again, as this uh, as, as a standalone project in Snowfall, man, I think it, uh, it, it will remain in conversation as one of one of the greats, uh, if not really goods, you know, and I think that's. Also important. I think that's a, a a good spot to be in, especially as you kind of said. Uh, this Snowfall was a TV show with a black guys. It was made with John, but John Singleton. It was made in some ways for us by us, right? And I love that about it. And I think 
that that adds a different lens than some of those other shows uh some of those other shows do and it is more modern though given a take uh, uh of the 80s in in, in 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 uh things of that nature so uh yeah i i think it will it will always be i think uh helmed as again one of the one of the better drug shows um that we've gotten and if if you don't say that you have to give it to Damson Idris as Franklin Saint i think is is a character that might live forever yeah, I, that that's kind of where I fall with it. I think the show as a, as a whole has been pretty solid to to good, and and as I said earlier, flashes of brilliance at, at particular moments in time. But I think the the creation of Franklin Saint as a character is really where this show will endure, and that's that's where it'll hold up ultimately. I think that that's the strongest asset that we can speak about Snowfall and Damson Injuries just being the anchor and, and the focal point of everything that we've seen at this point. He's been absolutely incredible. You know, he's come in and, and certainly just made his his stamp and his mark in terms of television antiheroes. And when we talk about the list of greatest characters and greatest antiheroes in the history of the medium, I think he deserves to be a part of that conversation for sure. And I think, again, he he offered mm-hmm. something new. He offered a, a younger character that, 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 than we're typically used to seeing, somebody with a lot of charisma yeah, sure. um, and also really focusing mm-hmm. on the element of family without having much direct family to even tie himself to. He had to go to his extended family to really bring them into the fold. And um, overall, I think there was a lot of style, a lot of flash, a lot of really, really cool things that Snowfall did that haven't necessarily been done in other series. And again, John Singleton is, is the guy, the brainchild behind this whole thing. I mean, his legacy speaks for itself. He's already, you know, one of the great directors that we've ever had and certainly rest in peace to him. And it was also nice at the at the end of the show to see that moment, that that that, that tribute that they had to Boys in the Hood, that little Easter egg when, when mm-hmm. Franklin and Leon yeah. were walking down the alley. That was a nice, cool sort of passing of the torch, you know, to, to the guy that started it. It was a very, a very full circle moment, I think. And I think that that just kind of speaks to just the ideas and the and the and the things that John Singleton brought to everything that he ever done. So overall, really, really good show. Really, really satisfying ending, I would say. And I certainly can't wait to see just how the legacy of Snowfall will endure over the years. But folks, those are all of our thoughts on season six and the series finale of Snowfall. If you've checked out the series on FX, hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to move on and talk about the ABC hit sitcom comedy from Quinta Brunson that just wrapped up with season two, Abbott Elementary. Welcome back, dorks, and welcome back, Abbott Elementary staff. <laughs> yes, and here we go. All right, now it is time to get this party started. <laughs> I'm ready to take the year on. I've got it down. These first graders won't know what hit them. That's enough. Make your voice deeper. <clears throat> that is enough. My work is done, Paddy Melissa, we don't have enough kids for a full third grade class, so now they go to you. And how many extra kids? Ten. I mean, great. Melissa, are you okay? Being a teacher is being asked to show up every day and try our best. This is Howard Gregory. I'm glad you're in one place. I have an emergency. What's up? What's wrong? Well, here is the thing. You know I'm out of here. This food. You eat like you took a cooking class in prison. Just whoa, take whoa. That. Sometimes friendship is the only meal you need. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I think of you like a young me. I think of you like an old me. This ain't a star is born. I shut your tiny ass down. It's gonna be a great year. It is, isn't it? This is exactly what I want for myself this year. I'm a hundred percent. Well, I guess somebody's got it together this year. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy they're noticing. It's very zen, actually. You guys gotta see what's in the cafeteria! For real. 
Now, as I mentioned, the series is created by Quinta Brunson and starring Quinta Brunson, Tyler James Williams, Janelle James, Lisa Ann Walter, Chris Perfetti, William Stanford Davis, and Cheryl Lee Ralph. So we talked about the first half of season two with Abbott Elementary at the end of 2022. Of course, they had their midseason break. And so we sort of did a quick recap of the episodes that we saw up until that point. I think they had released 10 on ABC before they went on hiatus. And then they've just come back after the new year and released the final 12 episodes of the season and sort of concluding season two. And so Abbott Elementary has been the award sensation of the year. It's been one of the most talked about new television shows that we've seen. And it's certainly just made its mark already in, in, in the short time that it's been on the air. And it's already been greenlit and renewed for season three. So certainly can't wait for that to come back around later this fall. But wanted to just talk about everything that we saw over the course of the second half of season two. And of course, again, the finale of this season and just where all of the storylines sort of wrapped up, at least for the time being, until we revisit this show later this fall. But with all of that out the way, man, I'll just pass it over to you. What were your overall thoughts about everything we got out of the second half of season two? Man, there are some episodes in Abbott Elementary that it's just bar after bar after bar. And then you laugh. And then you're laughing. It's just the it's it remains, I think, the perfect tonal, I think, uh uh just conglomerate. I don't know what to call it, but the perfect medium of everything I think I want out of Abbott Elementary and everything it's been doing since since season one. And now we're here uh again, the end of season two, and it's like it hasn't gotten old. <laughs> it still remains fresh. There are still new problems that arise and you can still click on a random episode and have a great time no matter what the overarching uh, uh, themes or storylines are for the season um, because it's just it, again every episode has something to say and I really love that about it and so I think the second half of season two just remains just is, is doing everything it needs to do man I think Abbott Elementary I think Quinta Brunson just gets it I think the the actors and, and, and actresses in this show have just hit a stride and everyone just understands why they're there and they do their job and it remains a tremendous show because of that um and so I and I, I, I love every little building block they continue to add to the show as well whether it's something a teacher goes through whether it's something specifically to a black student whether it's something uh, um, all the the whole staff is going through uh, whether it's love things it's just it remains a show that i don't know i think just gets it um and and remains entertaining and fun because of that so yeah man i'm i'm still a, i'm still aboard abbott elementary season two is still being one of the most fun things on tv and one of the i think more consistent thing television shows on tv um and i already miss it i'm like dang man this is this is this is it for now like this is like one of them shows that feels like uh, uh i don't know I, I i think people watch tv more linear nowadays right where back in the day you used to just watch an episode of My Wife and Kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, randomly. It never had to be episode two of My Wife and Kids, episode three. But now, what, something like Abbott Elementary, where we're all tuned in, we're all watching this thing in order. It's just kind of sad that, like, next week, I'm like, well, dang, where's Abbott at? Like, do I want to watch a random episode one day? You know what I mean? So, I think that's interesting, too. But, man, Abbott is, is it's on fire, and it's hard, it's hard for me to see uh, a, a moment in which that fire goes out, man. It really is. So I think season two, everything that we've gotten has just built on all of the incredible success of season one. And like all the great sitcoms and, and, and especially the mockumentaries that, that Abbott takes some influence from like The Office or Parks and Rec, 
Um, it presents you with those those funny situational elements of just where they are and just what they have to deal with. Obviously, this being an elementary school, there's going to be many scenarios and situations that come up that are unique to that environment that we're going to take sort of a specific look at week to week. But then it's also building the larger storylines, the the A storylines that are that are the overarching things that we really follow that connect us, you know, to the overall threads of the characters and just where they are in their particular journeys. And I think the season two as a whole, and definitely with the second half, they just kicked that up another level, right? And I think that all of those things started to slowly pay off, but also still leave a lot left to be desired so that we can continue to tune in and see like where everything goes in the future. I, I do think that the first 10 episodes as a whole are stronger than the second half, the the the, the most recent 12 mm-hmm. episodes that we got. But that's not to say that these most recent 12 aren't good. They're still great. But that first 10 was like, Literally every single week, I thought that we were like mm-hmm. breaking new ground. This time around, I think we kind of settled in a little bit more and st- started to like yeah. really, really focus in on some very specific elements, which I think is kind of necessary. You can't, you probably can't keep up that same pace, that same just like frenetic pace on a week to week basis for an entire season. And so I think that they made a smart choice to kind of pull back a little bit on some of the development with some of these stories and give a little bit more breathing room. But still, overall, it, it was it was fun to watch. There were some great moments and also some great resolutions and just great um, character explorations that we got. We got a lot of a lot of moments to go a little bit deeper with some of our primary characters and just got to you know, get, get a better understanding of their backstories, their families, where their vantage points are, where they're coming at certain situations from. Mm-hmm. All that stuff was just really, really well done. And so I think that it, it's in a great space right now. It, it can't do any wrong for me because week to week I, I get very excited to watch Abbott. And so I'm certainly eagerly anticipating the return of it this fall. I do want to talk about um, a couple of key moments that just occurred over the season. So if you haven't caught up with Abbott, would encourage you to go finish those episodes, watch that. This is going to be a spoiler, a quick spoiler conversation about where things are currently with the state of our characters. One of the things that we we sort of dove a little bit deeper into in the second half specifically was Janine's family and, and specifically her relationship with her mother and her sister. And we got the appearance of Io Beery playing her sister and also Taraji P. Henson playing her mother. And so we finally got to put some faces to these people that she's been referencing really from the start of the show. And we quickly found out that those relationships aren't that great. They're in very challenging places for very different reasons with both of them, which she's certainly alluded to as a character. But I think, again, we we finally got to see that writ large on the television screen and see how that would play out once they actually became real fixtures in the show. We saw both of them show up in person. It wasn't just a FaceTime call. Io Edabiri visited town and stayed with stayed with Janine. Taraji, as her mother, came, you know, by Abbott and just sort of like popped up surprisingly to quote unquote visit her, but we know it was a little bit deeper than that. What were your thoughts just about seeing those relationships develop and also just like how they manifested with those two actors in particular, you know, sort of portraying her mother and her sister and how that played off of their relationships relationships with Janine specifically? Man, I really loved seeing Iowa Berry as her sister. It was something about her, that quirkiness that exists in Janine kind of does slightly exist um, in her sister as well. But she's so much more, I think, uh, uh, I guess, disconnected um, and, you know, quote unquote, cooler because of the way uh, uh, I guess she had to to leave, right, and explore her own um, avenues in the world. And, and that is, a, uh, I think, one of those relationships that a lot of us as millennials can understand. A lot of us left somewhere and somebody did not like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Somebody did not like that you left. So I really, that that's the, of course, there's the relationship with her mom too, but it's something about the relationship with her sister. I was like, 
you know, I can see that, and I can see both sides too, which I think is makes that a little bit, more, a little more multi layered of a conversation that they had um, than, than than anything, man. But I love. I love those threads. I think that they put in there. They had Janine talks had been talking about her sister and her mother throughout all of these episodes, right? And to finally see them, and to finally see the way that they treat Janine, it's like, man, this girl is. Of course, she's not without faults, right? But we all know after watching Janine that she is. Uh, uh, I don't think naive is the word word per se all the time. Of course, she has a little uh, naiveness to her, but she's so nice. <laughs> Janine is just so nice, um, and and I think the way the world uh, uh, treats her or the lack of boundaries that she sets, I think for herself is, again, it's like one of the more adult things in the show, right? Where where Abbott Elementary is to me for all audiences, right? It's on ABC. But I think that's really like an adult thing to talk about is those relationships between your mother and the sister. Is those, you're not setting enough boundaries. This is going to happen to you kind of thing within those relationships. So I, I really like those through lines and I really like, the, the choices of Ayo Edabiri and Taraji P. Henson. I thought they worked pretty well for, for what they had to do um, in, in those relationships are, again, can be broken down and talked about. So, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed seeing both of them, but I really like the relationship between her and Ayo Edabiri. Certainly. I think um, to speak to the relationship with her mom and Taraji P. Henson coming in, and that was the penultimate episode where we saw yep. really how their relationship was, was going to play out and, and to find out that, she had merely shown up to, to to get money to pay off her phone bill so that her phone wouldn't get cut off. I mean, we, we knew that something something crazy was, you know, sort of up her sleeve to begin with. She always kind of seemed a little bit shaky, especially when you hear Janine say like, oh, yeah, I've been trying to call you and you haven't returned mm-hmm. my calls and we haven't really spoken that much. How have you been? Like Janine's trying to actually like see what's going on. Like, how are you doing? And then her mom is just very short with her, very curt and, and almost, you know, passive aggressive at times too. You know, like this place, mm-hmm. this place isn't good enough for you, baby, but she's only saying stuff like that in order to, to, to goad her daughter into to helping her out with her Butter phone bill. Up. And it would be at the sacrifice also of this personal trip that Janine wants to take for herself because she's, you know, she's coming off of the heels of the relationship that she had with, with Vince Staples character and the stuff with Greg is still mm-hmm. a bubble and still, you know, sort of developing. So she's in this place of like wanting time for herself, which is totally reasonable. She's going to finish up the school year very soon. And so now she's in a place to just like take a solo trip. Right. And, and who wouldn't want something like that after working so hard and also dealing with some personal challenges as well. And now her mom comes in and potentially threatens, you know, the the the, the existence and, and and the possibility of that idea. And I just love the fact, you know, that Cheryl Lee Ralph um, Barber comes in and is like, "You can't do that. Like, we cannot allow you to to to, you know, have your mother come in and really just derail these plans that you have for yourself. It won't be good for you." And you see Barbara like step mm-hmm. up and is willing to pay that money for her mom's phone bill. That that really got me because you just you just understand that like yeah. Barbara in this time has sort of become a mother-like figure to Janine. And you see mm-hmm. you see that in that in that specific moment, how she's just like at the first line of defense for Janine, even 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 against her own mother. And so that just really stood out to me. So I just loved how they 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 yeah. went deeper into those threads and got into the really emotional moments too. Um what, what did you have a favorite, you know, sort of like overall episode or a couple of like favorite overall episodes from just like the second half? There there were a lot of key things that went down. I think for me, if I had to pick out a favorite one, it was probably the uh the conference that they went to, which I think was like maybe the third or fourth episode in mm. the second half of the season. It was the moment yeah. where, you know, Janine and Greg finally like shared their, their first kiss. They ducked off, you know, from the, from the social and, and went and had their first kiss. It was, it was just a great moment to kind of see. And I think that that was at the same time 
if I'm not mistaken, they were on a very hot winning streak. They were coming off of a lot of award wins. And so just a conversation mm-hmm. around Abbott at that particular time. And I think it was February when that episode aired. It was just like, yeah, this is the show. And now like the moment that everybody's been waiting for finally happened. So that probably stood out as like the best moment of this of this half of the season. But do you have any like standouts or any episodes in particular that, that, that were that were favorites for you? Yeah, it's also crazy that same episode aired, remember, really close to the Harley Quinn special um, where they were playing Hawkman and Hawk Girl, <laughs> and they were right. in a relationship. So it's just really funny that it all kind of was like at the same time. Man, I really, really like the Teacher's Appreciation episode, um, and it's because uh, uh, what what Greg has to do in that episode, there are so many bars being thrown. I'm telling you, man, when I say quotables, are in that episode, I mean, it was just, I was like, I don't know what's going on in this episode and what's going on with the writing, but y'all are bringing everything home. So I really like the episode. And it's hilarious because of, uh, what's this? I always forget the gender's name, Mr. Johnson mm-hmm. is also hilarious in that episode where all the teachers are like trying to win these tickets <laughs> for the 70, court side of the 76ers game. And and Mr. Johnson ends up getting the tickets. It's just it's just a really good episode to me. But really, it was the story beats um, and the the what the overarching one of the biggest quotes to me that came out of that episode. I remember where uh, they were like, you don't get to choose when you're recognized. Right. Gregory was like, I don't deserve this. Like, I haven't even done anything. And and I think it was uh, Melissa. She's like, well, it doesn't matter because you don't get to choose when you recognize. So just enjoy it. I was like, dang, that's real. Like when you get recognized for something, you're not like, oh, I feel like getting recognized for this thing. No, somebody has to come to you and do that. So it's like own the moment while you have the moment. I really love that um, that idea um, and that, that, that overarching thing for that episode. So, yeah, teachers appreciation, man. If anybody rewatches that episode, I'm telling you, get a pen and paper because they was dropping them. It was, it was crazy. Yeah, I also want to shout out the uh, the festival episode, which sort of like resolved that that charter school storyline. There were there was the looming threat that that mm, Abbott was going to be, yes. you know, sort of taken over and become a charter school, which would just displace a lot of the kids. It would just it would create so much mm-hmm. disarray, and the, the the teachers weren't for that. And it was nice to just see all the all the staff and the teachers come together and put on like this event to to basically rally around Abbott and say like, yeah, we don't want that. Like Abbott might not be the most well resourced school. We know that. We know that we're not necessarily up to par when it comes to certain things, but but we won't have to deal with any of the problems that a charter school system might have to deal with because kids will have to apply. It's going to be a whole thing, right? It's going to just really mess up the entire community. And so I just liked how they resolved that storyline, at least temporarily. It might come back around in season three. We'll have to see. But lots of great moments this season. Certainly cannot wait to see everything that they do in Abbott Elementary for season three when it returns this fall. But folks, those are all of our thoughts on the second half of Abbott Elementary season two. If you've checked out the most recent episodes, hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to move on and wrap up our conversation with the Star Wars original series on Disney Plus, The Mandalorian. We've been chatting about season three for the past few weeks now, and we just got the final two episodes of season three of this series. And so it's definitely been an interesting journey, to say the least, about The Mandalorian season three. We know that this series has been hugely, hugely popular for a number of years. And I think coming into season three, now in sort of a different landscape for Star Wars, when there's multiple Star Wars series on Disney Plus, multiple offerings and different different avenues that you can take in terms of where you want to experience your Star Wars storytelling. The Mandalorian has certainly been in, I think, a in a bit of a state of flux because it's coming mm-hmm. off of a, a of a spinoff in the book of Boba Fett and it's also sort of in the middle 
of this bigger experiment that they're taking with these Disney Plus shows because we recently found out about the existence of an of an upcoming movie that's going to be developed by series creator Dave Filoni that's sort of going to pay off all of the story threads that we're seeing establishing not only The Mandalorian, but The Book of Boba Fett and the upcoming Ahsoka series as well. So The Mandalorian Season 3 has, again, existed in a very peculiar space, I think, at this particular point in time. But with the conclusion of this season and these final two episodes that have come out, before we dive into our specific thoughts and before we talk about some of the spoiler-filled details that occurred over these past couple of weeks, just want to pass it to you, to you to get your overall thoughts and feelings about how they wrap things up with the with the season three of The Mandalorian. What, what were your overall thoughts just about where the story went and how they how they sort of concluded this this season of The Mandalorian with the storytelling? Uh, I think there were a fine two episodes for me. You know, me and you had talked at length about the first six and how everything didn't work for us. There's some episodes in there. And like, I don't know what we're doing here. But I I found myself uh, uh, enjoying these last two episodes. I think they do things that are are interesting and very Star Wars-like um, in, in a, cop, a couple of, like, shocking things as well um, to, to, to kind of, I think, propel us into the future of what the Mandalorian looks like. So, uh, man, I, I, I think overall, again, it, it, it was fine. I really like... The last episode, I think, I really think I really liked the finale, um, in in what was going on there. But man, I, I it was some action going down. Some things happened that we expected to happen. Some people showed up we expect to show up. But I think I I just enjoyed it uh, for what it was. It felt like Star Wars to me, and it felt like The Mandalorian had become, I think, a, something bigger than what again we originally set out when what the original episode one uh, was at the beginning of season one. Now I was like, dang, we're really here with the mandalorian it like it, it means something completely different so i i enjoyed it man i thought i thought they kind of bounced back from some of those weird episodes in there or some of those weird story choices that were in there um but yeah i liked it i think i i think i, I ended somewhat satisfied uh satisfied by the last two episodes i still have to kind of process i think the season as a whole because it was so fragmented to me because it was so weird but i think if you take those last two episodes and just make them their own thing turn it into your own hour 30 special i think it's really enjoyable and i enjoyed myself yeah season three has certainly been disjointed and i think you can find worse episodes in the season than these most recent two i i did like certain elements of these final two episodes i think from a action set piece standpoint they were phenomenal this was some of the best action that we've ever gotten in any of the mandalorian episodes you can tell that the budget has certainly mm -hmm. been increased the bag has been opened for the show twofold i think by disney <laughs> it, it looks it looks the part and could play on a big screen I, I would dare say it was it was incredible looking action and certainly some moments of thrills and and, and excitement that there were nice to see and some arcs that have had an element or I guess a, a sort of an idea of, of conclusiveness, a nature of conclusiveness to them. But there are still some things that I'm a little I'm a little unsatisfied by. There are some lingering threads mm -hmm. that weren't really wrapped up. Some things that were revisited or opened up in earlier episodes that never really fully got paid off. So they're just kind of out there as 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 these sort of unsolved mysteries, I guess, within the within the larger context of this show. But it was a solid ending. I think that they, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that they stuck the landing. I, I wouldn't go that far because that's kind of giving them a lot of credit for tying up everything. But I think that they 
had a moderately smooth landing to, to, to really closing out this, mm. this particular era of storytelling for the Mandalorian. Again, some really, really cool moments, some really cool action that we saw. Um, and just like a, a, a larger than life presence of just like the Mandalorians within this larger star Wars universe. I mean, we saw them, we saw them in ways in these most recent two episodes that we've never seen them before. And that was cool. There was certain stuff I liked about that, but I think other things as it relates to the larger conflict at play, the villains and antagonists in this show, and just also the focal point, of, of what this show has been over the past seven or eight weeks has just kind of left me a little bit. It's just left me wanting more across the board. And I think that by the end of season three, I don't know how much movement that we've taken with certain characters. And that, that kind of leaves me, that just leaves me quite scratching my head about just the future of like, what's going to happen with our main characters and just how are they going to, you know, play an important role in the future mm-hmm. in the future seasons of, the, of this particular show. And maybe even the movie when that comes around. So not perfect, solid overall but i think that there was definitely some room for improvement but let's talk about some of these yeah. specifics and, and we should start with uh with episode seven of season three which was entitled the spies and we finally got the appearance of moff moff gideon um, played by Giancarlo esposito in the show he's been really the big bad of the mandalorian for three seasons now and we finally got his reemergence, and we also got the appearance of this shadow council that, that that's made up of a group of imperial warlords almost that that are operating behind the scenes they're making moves and maneuvers that are pretty much largely unknown to the to the public eye they are working deep deep undercover and we get this opening sequence where moff gideon is talking to them about his reinforcements and what he's trying to do in terms of eliminating the mandalorians but then we also get some nods to to maybe future implications of 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 incoming conflicts most notably with grand admiral thrawn his 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 name you know gets gets name dropped here in this opening sequence which i think certainly points to the future of what we might see in ahsoka and maybe even that movie that they're working on but what were your thoughts just about not only seeing Moff Gideon again, but also just like the bigger implications that there's this shadow council, there's this larger group sort of pulling the strings and mm-hmm. and really, you know, sort of maneuvering behind the scenes to to keep the Empire alive, essentially, because that's what they're doing. They're doing this really all in service of the memory of the Empire, because we know the Empire is collapsed really at the at the end of the events of Return of the Jedi, but they are carrying forth the work and it's certainly going to lead into the events of the sequel trilogy. But what, what are your thoughts just about those connective pieces that they tried to make between those two sagas? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, up until this point, when we deal with a lot of the Star Wars content we've ingested, we've always been dealing with the power of two, right? With, when it comes to the Sith and the dark side and the Empire, we're so used to, again, that that that, that rule of two, Palpatine and, and Darth Vader and all kind of people, right? Um, shoot, Dooku and Asajj Ventress extends, you know, it, it, I think it's interesting coming into here where there's a council. And I was like, wait a second, we don't really operate this way in Star Wars a lot, right? Like, sure, there are always other players at part between your gun raids and all these other people, but we've never really seen the Empire really act as like a council like this. And so when I seen that, when I seen Moff Gideon kind of talking to these this, this, this council, I was like, hmm, I kind of like this because... Uh, uh, not only does this mean, of course, they're a larger threat, but each of these people on this council could have some kind of tie to a different piece of the universe that somebody can talk about at some point in time, right? You can say, oh, this person is part of this council. Well, maybe let's go tell their story, or maybe there's somebody 
who is uh, uh, part of the resistance in their part of the world or of the galaxy, right? Um, so I, th- I just thought that was cool. I was like, dang, a council was kind of cool, kind of a cool thought. Um, and I can't wait to potentially learn about the other people of the of this dark council. I, I just thought it was a cool concept um, that we can mess with. Uh, uh, not only that, but I also love how like Moff Gideon still in that instance still feels like <laughs> the 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 king of all of them somehow. Just the way he talks to them, the way he he's like. Bro, cloning's not my thing. It's your thing. Go away, kind of type thing. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's just interesting. So I love. I, I I really like that idea. I think of that council and that through line, like you said, of of kind of connecting us to those other pieces of of, of Star Wars. Of of again giving us something to chew on. Um, for for uh, continuity, man. I thought I thought it was a cool idea. Yeah, it it definitely kind of just reshaped this this entire series and just everything that we've seen thus far. Um, to a larger context of where we are in this particular timeline, like this is the quote unquote New Republic era, um, again, in between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. And so we're sort of seeing how things came to be by the time we met the First Order. Like, how did the First Order really come to power? Mm-hmm. We haven't fully explored that. This is starting to tap into the beginnings of that, where the Empire is fragmented. It's all over the place. There is no real leader, I think, leading to lending, you know, sort of credence to your idea that there is no sort of rule of two at this moment. It's it's a group of people that are in service of the Empire and in service of Palpatine and what he believed in, trying to piece all of this together. And the one person who would be the leader, Grand Admiral Thrawn, is nowhere to be found, at least not yet, right? We, exactly. we don't know we don't know his whereabouts because in the in the timeline continuity at the end of Rebels he went missing and we still haven't officially met him in the live action universe because that's still yet to come in Ahsoka. We even got that moment last season in The Mandalorian when Ahsoka was looking for Thrawn. She was like, "Where is he?" Right? That was her main motivation. And so we'll find out, you know, those threads soon enough. But I I, I did like seeing this, and it was also interesting because there there's a lot of parallels here with what Giancarlo Esposito has to do in this show. Compared to the work that he did with Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, a lot of his character, Mm -hmm. Gus Fring, was operating in the shadows. A part of why he lasted as long as he did is because nobody knew he was who he was. And also the fact that he was working directly against the Mexican cartel, which gave him sort of the lift and the elevation that he needed to get into the game. He was working working directly against them to build his own empire, but nobody really knew. And Gus was a magnificent liar. You couldn't couldn't get any information Mm -hmm. out of him. And even here, you're seeing those same sort of tropes imparted in the character of Moff Gideon because when they talk about cloning he's like yeah I don't do that which is clearly a lie like we see like yes he absolutely is into cloning and that's like his ultimate mission here is to make a bunch of clones of himself and so I just love that Mm -hmm. yes he's a part of this council but he still has his own personal motives that nobody can really crack because he obviously is power hungry he wants to do his own thing and carry out his own mission so really cool stuff there to, to, to continue that world building um but speaking of world building though one of the big things that's been occurring this whole season is just like these th- th- this coalescence of these Mandalorian clans, right? And Bo-Katan has been sort of the nexus point of bringing together all of this, all of these disparate factions of the Mandalorians, and that really kind of that really kind of came to be in this in this episode, in episode seven of this season, where I think pretty much every existing Mandalorian, at least all the major ones, came together in this episode to to unite an army. Mm-hmm. Um, when they go to Mandalore, we meet another clan that's like on a pirate ship, which was really cool. You know, she's also bringing together <laughs> the people that she initially worked mm-hmm. with, 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 um, with, um, I forget his name. Um, the, 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 the one guy that she fought last episode, but, um, she, she's yeah, bringing together all these people. Um, and, and it's really cool to see Axe Woes is his name. 
And I think that that was just like one of the things that we hadn't really got, we we hadn't really gotten this in the series so far is just like seeing how many Mandalorians are really out there and and what would it be like to see them all come together and also just get their different vantage points. Because one of the things that we did learn is that Bo-Katan ultimately surrendered herself and the Darksaber to Moff Gideon, which was not the story that I think many people believed happened, but she believes that that was respons- the responsible, you know, sort of event of of the Night of a Thousand Tears, which murdered a lot of Mandalorians and, and really kind of kickstarted this this era of all these disparate factions. But what did you think about just seeing, you know, all of these all of these different clans come together, you know, sort of under one cause and finally put their put their differences aside to to really just you know unite against Moff Gideon and the, and the Empire and what they were trying to achieve here. Oh, man, I, we kind of talked about it in, I think it was episode five or six, but I love a good team up, especially when it's, I think, the the re, uh, I think, imagining and cultivation and coming together of this organization that you always hear about, but they're not, one, they're not together, two, the, the, when the, the TV show starts, it's just The Mandalorian, when we're in the original trilogy of Star Wars, you only know Boba Fett. You're like, where are these people and how do they exist? And now I feel like that, that we finally got the moment where you're like, oh, these are the Mandalorians. They are they are rallying. They're together on this planet. Of course, like you said, everyone has their own differences. That's what that's why Bo-Katan is here. Miss <laughs> Kreese is trying to get these people come, to come back together. But it's something about that feeling of. Star Wars is actually building this 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 whole culture of people. They're building this group of people for everyone to be like, oh, shoot. OK, we get it. Those are the Mandalorians. This is why they're important. And this is how this is their story of how they potentially can come back together and fight back against the Empire or whatever is is is, is driving them down. So I loved it, bro. I think that's why I really like these episodes. It's, it's something about the team up that always feels really cool to me. But to see all these different Mandalorians, all the different gadgets, all the different uh, uh, shoot, all the different helmets, low key, and what they're all wearing. The armor, you telling me the armor was up up in here doing what she had to do. I love that. <laughs> I love that she pulled up too, because you know a lot of times somebody who's a leader somewhere, they're like, oh y'all go do y'all thing. The armor was like, Psh, I'm coming too. What y'all mean? So I love to see her. I love that Bo-Katan was there. I love that Paz was there. You know what I mean? It was just really cool. I think to see all these. I think Mandalorians that we had become accustomed to over these past couple seasons that we eventually or not eventually yeah but that are uh became important to us over time to see them all come together as well as their followers and be like yeah we we we're here for one mission we all have the same cause let's get it done um because yeah it, it didn't have to be that way it could have been a story where the tribes just never got along and that was the that was the season skip them off gideon it's the, the the old versus the new or, you know what I mean, what, whatever the tribes call for. It could have been that, but it wasn't that. And I think I, I just enjoyed the team up for what it was, man. So, yeah, I had a great time with it. I, I, I was I was really kicking it. There are some weird things when it comes to, I think, our main characters, when it comes to, to, to young Grogu that I was like, eh, I don't know how I feel about that thing in particular. But, again, I think overall the, the, the idea of all those Mandalorians coming together was very satisfactory for me. Yeah, it's a bit of a trade-off, I think, for me, because I have to commend them for, for deepening and, and enriching just the existence of this of this culture of the Mandalorians, which is something I wanted to see 
at the top of the show. I just wanted to learn more about what they meant to this universe. How many of them were there? Where where are they? Like, what are the what are the, the the pain points between these different factions? Like, why don't they get along? So the fact that we can start to get to those places and have those conversations, like the moment where everybody just sits down and is just talking, you know, before the the big battle, that's a good moment. That's a really cool moment because you get to see perspective and you get to, get to see where people are. And we, of course, we we again get the the revelation of everything that went down between Bo-Katan and Moff Gideon and how he betrayed her. All that stuff mm-hmm. was really well done. At the same time, what it unfortunately I think does, which is more of a I think more of a criticism for the entire season and not these episodes specifically, but we do lose a little bit of that focus on our main protagonist in Dinjarin, right? Because we're we're taking some of the focus off of him to more mm-hmm. so expand the Agreed. world and the scope of the Mandalorians, which is probably a necessary evil, but maybe I think if the season overall was more balanced up until this point, I wouldn't have felt that way. Again, I don't think that this is something specific to episode seven. I think that more work could have been done earlier in the season to give Din Djarin the amount of time that we sort of need with that character Agreed. and even Grogu to a certain extent so that we didn't feel that way. But by the end of this, it's like, wow, he's really in the background now. Like he's just like along for the ride. He's a part of the he's a part of the the army. And and that's that's fine to a certain extent, but he's still the main character, right? And so I think that, that that's one of the things exactly. that kind of played against it. But overall still a really cool visual. Dope as hell to just see all these different armors and and helmets and cultures and just all that stuff to to come together on screen was a really really dope visual and then it leads to this big battle and and really episode seven and eight are really one long episode that's just like divided in two if we want to be honest about it because this battle continues into episode eight but it kickstarts in episode seven when we see all of the mandalorians go to the great forge on mandalore but it's a trap these imperial stormtroopers are already there moff gideon is already sort of enacting his plan and they have beskar enhanced armor so they're damn near indestructible and we just get this big opening battle taking place in the great forge which again looked spectacular just the execution of it was incredible i couldn't help but wonder the entire time and i was kind of sitting on pins and needles watching it like who's gonna be the turncoat like who's gonna betray the Mandalorians in this moment, because this episode is called the spies. And also a couple of episodes ago, we found out the Mandalorians had broke free Moff Gideon from his prison transport. So this entire time I was just waiting Mm -hmm. for somebody to like turn on the Mandalorians, but it never happened. It didn't even happen in episode eight. Actually, everybody turned out to be pretty heroic. So I don't know what's up with that thread. I don't know if they're going to continue to go somewhere with that and that idea, but that was the one moment that kind of left me a little bit confused but beyond that the battle itself was really really cool to see and just the stormtrooper armor and just to see the existence of these clones that moff gideon had been building for who knows how long was also a pretty a pretty crazy revelation we had suspected that for a long time it's not like the most shocking thing but i think to see them manifest in the television show and to see that they are basically him like this is not like clones of just random stormtroopers or clones of snoke or whatever the rumor might have been like they were just him and they were going to have the force all crazy stuff to see. So, so how did you just sort of like take all of those different different moments that were happening between the battle and just you know even Paz Vizsla sacrificing himself at the end so that everybody else could escape to wow. to the reveal of the clones and just you know Moff Gideon's ultimate plan there. Man, so 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 much I think was going down so fast, but it's it 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 was really cool. I think I think Star Wars to watch again, and you see the stormtroopers, and you're like, wait a second. Something's not right here. Like when you see the best car, that's one thing. But when the you know the fight that 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 kind of final almost final fight happens between uh, Bo Katan and and Moff Gideon, 
and the red guard comes out. I think that was a revelation for me. I think I did not put that together, right? Because we all know of uh, the last Jedi scene between Rey and, and Kylo Ren and the red guard fighting. I've, it was like a ding moment for me when they came out. Like, oh, they're wearing Beskar armor. Wow. Now that's that's how you make a, yeah, <laughs> that's some nerdy Star Wars stuff right there. You're like, oh, okay, that's what's going down. I really love that moment. I thought that was really cool. Speaking of Paz real quick, man, what a warrior. <laughs> what a guy. He took, I have to, I wish he, we had like a body count for Paz though. Like the dude was taking out between that episode and the pirate episode, the dude had to take oh, out wow. like, Eighty uh, something people, bro. Like it's kind of crazy. Like he's the only person with like this blaster machine gun thing, and he is just he's he's going crazy the entire time. Um, and yeah, man, it's it's it's, it's just really sad because Paz was a, a beast, man. And I think what makes it even more sad is he had a whole son, and I think that's what made it like. Do you have to be the sacrifice here? You're the you're the one who has a kid. You know what I'm saying? I was like, dang, come on, man. It doesn't have to be Paz, but. A, uh, I do, I do like the idea that there was a consequence there. There was somebody who had to stay back and, and stop everybody. I, it's always important, I think, to have that consequence. So I'm, I'm glad. I think I felt that sadness because I think it added um, um, a layer. I think to that moment that I needed, man. But uh, I, I love how demented Moff Gideon is with his own clones. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought that was pretty crazy as well. Um, and and yeah, it was, it was uh, a fun. I think adventure and watch especially how i think uh uh when din when din jarn leaves has to go save baby groku and then come back uh and then it's like okay yes i like this because uh we we kind of talked about this but even one of the three lines of this season has been more so like a bo-katan story right you even you even was like maybe sometimes the title is just about bo-katan this season and that's true but also i think i I just thought about this. I don't know why I didn't think about this a long time ago, that like the concept of the Mandalorian is already plural. There is no Mandalorians with an S. They're just like the Mandalorian is already plural. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> why didn't I think of that before? I just thought about this thing. And so now I'm, I'm, I was thinking of the these past couple episodes of like, OK, what is uh, uh, Bo-Katan and um, Din Djarin's relationship right because there is that important conversation of them on the boat with Bo-Katan kind of giving Din Djarin the rundown right I was like huh that was a kind of an intimate moment at least for as intimate as you're going to get for these Mandalorians you know what I mean like you can only get so much intimacy with these guys but it, it, I felt like an important moment too and f- to see Din Djarin come back in that moment to say Mandalorians are stronger together and that's literally a creed that they live by and for them to follow that too I like that moment as well again especially with the reveal of the red guard and moff gideon and then the black saber breaks and it's just a lot happening kind of in those moments um that make you say okay that was cool that was some cool star wars tidbits and so yeah i I enjoyed a lot of that man that was i think what made it i agree with a lot of your points (laughs) for sure of what was going down but i also i also liked a lot of these things too yeah a lot of fast and furious action again it it it, it all was epic and and done so on a grand scale and and for the most part was really working for me and keeping things in a at a very frenetic pace you also got you know once we got to episode eight the 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 season finale you also got the moment where din is 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 captured and grogu essentially has to rescue him now and we get Mm -hmm. to see grogu use his force powers which was 
adorable and also dope as fuck at the same time because he was like whooping some ass <laughs> and he's also flipping around and still trying to figure out his force powers but he is he's pretty far along that training with luke has already gone a long way you can tell that the guy has mm-hmm. he, he has a he, he has a very impressive arsenal underneath him i do want to talk about these clones though because this is like a big revelation um and this might just be yeah. the end of moff gideon so i don't know if more will come from this but in the rise of skywalker episode nine of the of the of the skywalker saga palpatine somehow returns yeah palpatine somehow comes back they don't go really in in much depth to explain it but we know that he ultimately created snoke to lure kylo ren to the dark side to ultimately rule the first order like he did all of this in the name of really rebirthing the empire And I think what we're seeing now with The Mandalorian and some of these other sort of New Republic era shows is that they're trying to make sense of where we went in the sequel trilogy because it was, quite honestly, it was disjointed and it it didn't feel all the way mapped out from the get-go. I think that uh, by the time we got Mm -hmm. to The Rise of Skywalker, it was like, well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't add up. And I think that they're trying to right some of those wrongs (laughs) here. So with Moss Gideon creating clones, I I don't know how much of that we're supposed to, to take to the bank in terms of uh, of that influence that might be imparted upon what what Palpatine ultimately does, we don't get any sort of acknowledgments or nods to Palpatine here. We don't know if there's any connective tissue. But even the Doctor from earlier in the season, when when we had that bottle episode in Episode Three, um, he he's sort of off nowhere to be found. We re- we really didn't get that storyline wrapped up. The scientists who practice cloning, right? Like they didn't really mm-hmm. take that anywhere right. beyond that specific episode. So I'm just kind of curious, and this is like almost pure speculation territory, but how much of this cloning that was focused on in this episode and really the Mandalorian up until this point, how much of that do you think influences the stuff that we saw happen in the rise of Skywalker and ultimately what Palpatine was able to achieve by the time we got to episode nine? I think that's actually going to be one of the things that they harp on in this movie, which is why we don't get all the answers with the scientists, which is why we don't get a hundred percent what that through line is all the way to Palpatine. I think Dave Filoni is going to be like, look, this cloning thing is a uh, <laughs> it's very important. Like you said, they're trying to write some of these wrongs in the in the story by the time we get to Rise of Skywalker. And I feel like this cloning thing is, is again, a for sure of no exception and that they'll start to, again, try to talk about uh, uh, these small things, because why even I think bring up that professor who's very interested in cloning, wipe his mind and then not talk about him ever again. That's like. If they don't, if they don't do anything with that, you're like, uh, this is a little weird. Like, did they, did he continue his research somewhere? And then the empire took, you know what I'm saying? I feel like there has to be something else there, especially if he's like the main guy helming this and attempting to have this research. It's like we have to talk about this thing. So right now it's kind of up in the air for me about how I feel about it, right? Because it's like you have to talk about this thing. You brought it up. You can't just bring it up and then be like, oh. We left it on the table kind of type thing. So, yeah, I, I have a feeling this cloning thing is going to be important um, in the future. Uh, but, the man, the ways in which they do it, I don't know. Sure, they have some kind of plan. But I think it's going to – I think it's a good idea there. But I am a little afraid of the execution. Um, and it's something about because of the way the Rise of Skywalker is, because of the way Palpatine comes out of nowhere. In some ways, it's so wild. It's like, can you really make sense of this at the end of the day? <laughs> can sure. you really, like, yeah. is this something we should move away from because it already didn't make sense? Or there's the other side to me, though, where it's like, this is Dave Filoni. He might have found some way or something to be like, okay, this might make sense a little bit. And I think if 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 it is the latter and Dave Filoni has found something to kind of bring us back to be like, okay, 
it's not perfect, but still a little believable. I, I could be on that train. And so that is my hope now. Now that's my that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm like, okay, they have to have something. A movie is coming. This cloning thing is a topic of conversation. Snoke, Ray, this is like this is almost just important for uh uh Palpatine as it is for Ray's story now too, right? It's like Ray, how like who even are you? Where'd you come about? And so I think I think they're gonna try to try to right some of those wrongs or fix some of those holes in that story that we have to talk about. So yeah, right now I don't I'm not a hundred percent sold. I don't I it could still at the end of the day I could be like, Yeah, that doesn't work for me. But I, I have a little bit of hope because it's Dave Filoni <laughs> in in what uh might happen. So yeah, I, I don't know yet. I don't know. Yeah, because the implementation of that story in The Rise of Skywalker felt like sort of a half-assed idea to begin with. So you almost Very have to half. do more work. You mm-hmm. you have to do more work now to make it all make sense. And, and, and you want them to reconcile that. And they've done that before. I think we've seen them sort of go back and, and not necessarily retcon certain things, but just enriching them, make them better, make them make more sense. And so that that is the hope. I was sitting here wondering, like, okay, well, I do want to, I want to get to that place. Like, we've been toying with this idea for a while. We know cloning is a massive part of all these stories, really, um, especially in this in this era, and also like the prequel era, which Palpatine ushered in the idea of cloning, right? And so we've seen it, we've seen it come to life before. But how do they, how do they execute that idea to connect us to that sequel trilogy to help us to hopefully make us, you know, go back and watch that and say, like, okay, this feels a little bit better. Um, also, the idea that he was going to have these clones have the force somehow is also just like out there, which I don't, I don't even know how, I don't even know how that's a thing. I don't, when he said that, I was like, wait, wow. Like they're, they're, they're not Jedi. They're not force sensitive. Like how, how are we getting there? So there, there certainly are still things that they have to tackle and address because I, I did find myself at a couple points this season, just thinking like, have yeah. they forgotten like what they wrote in their own scripts? Like, did they forget that they said that thing or that they <laughs> introduced that idea and like all of a sudden we're not paying it off? So I just don't want us to end up there. Mm-hmm. Like, I want them to to reach those conclusions. Um, and, and, and finally, we do get the apparent demise of Moff Gideon. I think we're left to assume like he's gone, although maybe a certain train of thought, thought might say like, well, you know, nobody. So he's not dead. But he looks like he was pretty dead to me. I mean, he got engulfed by flames, but he does have like some pretty crazy powerful explosion. armor as well. It was a crazy explosion. So I'm just kind of wondering, mm-hmm. where do you fall on that? Do you think he's like absolutely dead and gone? And and if so, was that a satisfying death? Was that a satisfying way to see him go out? Or do you think that he might sort of still be out there somehow and, and survive that, that, that incident? Man, this is one of those ones where like, I really don't know. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to tell. You know, you're raising very good questions right now. We're like... I think there is a level of threat with that explosion that it's hard to come back from. At the same time, like you said, nobody. Not only that, the man has been cloning himself. There's probably another Moff Gideon in some other planet <laughs> somewhere who is he gotta have a you reserve know, as competent somewhere. as as the he gotta have a reserve as the original. And so part of me feels like this is not the end of it. There are other there's another Moff Gideon, if not Moff Gideons <laughs> with an S that exists. What would be really crazy? Imagine okay, Mandalorian. Season four, episode one. It opens with a Moff Gideon lookalike on another planet who was just working, doing local work. You know what I'm saying? Like he's trying to fit in and be a normal person. I would love that. I ain't gonna lie to you. I would be like, oh shoot, who is this guy? Um, so I think I think that's a cool idea of him still being alive. But if he is dead, is that a satisfying uh, conclusion? I mean, he's kind of done his work. He almost slaughtered. <laughs> 
<laughs> an entire planet of Mandalorians. He's killed a decent amount of people. He's been around a long time, right? It's not like we haven't got a lot of him. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's a satisfying conclusion because I can, I can see a world where he still exists and he's still alive. I also see a world, though, where maybe there's an, they have another protagonist in their minds, right? We see there's a whole council of these people. I could see another... Uh, we, we know Thrawn is coming. You know what I'm saying? I could see another world where they're like, okay, maybe this Moff Gideon chapter has closed. And even if it didn't close, maybe he's no longer the main antagonist anymore. Maybe they introduce a new person and Moff Gideon is still kind of there <laughs> in some form and some with some kind of force, right? Maybe there is another clone, but he's still not the main big bad anymore. There is another, they do have a movie to think about, like you said, or like we've kind of been talking about. So, man, I can kind of see both ways where that could be somewhat of a satisfying conclusion, but also I could see a way where like, nah, dude still might be alive somewhere. So I actually don't know. It's a hard question. If he actually died in that fight, then I think that that was such a whack way to go out. It would be mm -hmm. so unsatisfying to me because he's been a pretty decent villain. I mean, when you have a big bad be the overarching villain for multiple seasons and he goes out in the way that he did in that particular episode. That's true. I was just sitting there like, nah, son, this can't be it. Like, if this <laughs> is it, that that was that was that was weak as fuck. So I'm gonna hold out hope that somehow he comes back either through cloning. I, I know a lot of those clones got destroyed, but who's to say he does not have a backup plan, right? As as we just stated. Mm -hmm. So hopefully he comes back as a clone or maybe that armor did in fact protect him because it is so strong and that that's what he built it to do. And, and even if there is a bigger villain coming in Thrawn, I think that Moff Gideon can still play a very, very integral role. Like, I would love to see Gideon and Thrawn play off of each other. Like, they kind of set that up in, in the previous episode where Gideon is kind of, like, scoffing at the idea of Thrawn. Like, well, where has he been? How is how, Where is he now? He's not leading this council, so what are we to do? You know, so I would love to even see that come to life. But if this is, like, truly the end of that character, then they... They kind of shit the bed for me in terms of bringing somewhat of a satisfying mm -hmm. conclusion to somebody that we're not supposed to like, per se. But you, you just want it to mean yeah. more. You want it to feel, I think, a little bit bigger, especially when you had Din Djarin look at Grogu and say, like, look, we can't run anymore. We have to take him out. That's the only way we're ever going to get past him. That sets up a big battle. That sets up a big conflict. Even with Bo-Katan, like, she has a ton of history with him. You want to see that sort of it's come true. together in a big, huge moment, and it didn't happen for mm -hmm. me, so... I'm just going to think that maybe he's somehow still out there. We'll have to see. Um, but to you know, sort of touch on our last point here, the final moments of the season finale, see Grogu essentially become one of the Mandalorian people. And, 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 and Din Djarin adopts, adopts him as a son, you know, formally allowing him to, to join the Mandalorian culture and the tribe. And we also see both of them, you know, sort of go on another brief adventure. They go take up, you know, sort of a, a, a new contract of work with Carson Teva, who we saw earlier this season. They have a relationship. We also see them go back to Navarro and revisit Grief Karga. He offers them, you know, a place to stay on the outskirts of town when they're in between adventures. And so it sort of neatly wraps up everything. But how did you feel about, you know, Grogu officially becoming a part of this culture and this clan, especially after already going through training with Luke, essentially becoming a young Jedi? And him and Din Djarin have been, you know, sort of a father and son this entire time, but they finally decided to make it official somehow because we don't know where Grogu's parents are. But Din makes the choice to say, I'm going to adopt you as my son so we can make you a Mandalorian. What did you think about just sort of that that bow that they put on the relationship between those two? Yeah, one of the confusing things for me, I think, was the naming convention. I don't really <laughs> understand completely how that works because it doesn't seem like it worked like that with some of the other mandalorians i think where he just adopted din i was like wait 
Is that how that works? I don't know. I, I think there's something there I just don't understand. Maybe they'll explain it some somewhere later down the line. But I think in a a a property, right, in Star Wars where titles and family is so important, this was like a this is almost like a, a wink, like, hey guys, this is Star Wars. And he gives them his name <laughs> kind of type thing. He said he adopts adopts him as a foundling or he adopts him as 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 his own son. And I, I, I think um I think it's interesting, man. I think it 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 ties them together even more. They've been they've been together so long at this point. And it's funny that we called him the child. We called Grogu the child for a long time before we even knew his name or everybody called him Baby Yoda. But everybody recognized that he was under Din Djarin's care. And everyone was like, go get your kid. Or everyone would be like, oh, is, is that your son? Or everybody would be like, and now it's just like, oh, well, time to tie it up in some meaningful way by making Grogu, um, I guess, an official, an official Mandalorian, man, an official youngling of the Mandalorians. I think I I think I do with Star Wars a lot, specifically things like this, uh in this these meaty, not meaty, but in these medium kind of shows and these shows that fit in between projects is I always project my mind into the future. I always am thinking, okay, but like where's where is Grogu in the new trilogy? Where is Din Djarin in the new trilogy um in, in of Star Wars? Where do they exist? Were they alive when kylo ren and snoke were doing all these things where they you know i don't know i this is something that i always do and, and and i'm hoping again this this next movie says something about that but i think their relationship and them becoming uh uh this 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 now again they're tied to each other now um at least as father and son in the guise of the other uh of the other mandalorians now uh, i don't know it just adds i think importance to their relationship and so it, it makes me wonder uh, of where again all this ends up man it really does it, it, and i think that's a that's a harder question <laughs> to answer i think they're trying to answer that question in real time for us as well but i think this is just such an important again wink and being like yeah they're they're really tied to each other now so i, I, I like the decision they were already like that anyway uh not 100 percent sold on the naming convention yet but i still like the idea of grogu being this like I still have this really cool idea of a young, force-sensitive Mandalorian. Because we don't get that. We don't get that. And so, yeah, I, I can't wait to see potentially where that ends up. Yeah, it was cool. You know, I think um, for a while there, especially in season two, the first half of season two, I was starting to become somewhat annoyed by the existence of Grogu because he would mm -hmm. just end up in shitty situations that Din would have to rescue him from. And I'm like... Okay, y'all, we, we cannot do this every week. It wasn't really until Ahsoka popped up and started to, like, educate Grogu about his existence and mm -hmm. say, like, yeah, you're Force-sensitive and there's more to you than just this this baby apparatus, essentially. And so mm -hmm. the fact that we can fast forward now and, like, Grogu has a lot of purpose here. You know, he's gone through training. He's honed his skills. He He's useful in battles. And, and he can still have the really adorable and funny moments, too. Like, when he's operating that that IG-11 for, for a while and he's doing the yes, no, mm -hmm. yes, no. Like, that's funny stuff, and you like that. But I just love that they can start oh, to, like, add oh. in those extra layers and threads and, and actually give him a title and, and a purpose. And we can we can probably see Grogu grow up at, at, at a certain point because... As you said, we don't necessarily know where they are in the Rise of Skywalker or really the entire sequel trilogy. So who's to say that Grogu isn't somewhere operating behind the scenes? Who's to say that Grogu couldn't have a presence in one of these future movies, especially if it takes place after the Rise of Skywalker? So I really like seeing that stuff come come to light and just, you know, him him sort of being accepted into a clan and a culture, especially coming off of that flashback where we saw he had to escape 
Order 66, and so we don't really know where his family is. So it was overall pretty pretty good, solid ending for, for that particular character. But wrapping up here, just want to get your overall thoughts about Season 3. How did things land for you? I know you say you're, you're still sort of grappling with how you feel about the season as a whole, but mm-hmm. just at the place we're at now with The Mandalorian as a show and also... As we have been alluding to, the future of this particular era of Star Wars and where it may go. We now know the existence of this movie by Dave Filoni. We know Ahsoka is around the corner. We know that some of these threads are all going to start coming together in somewhat of a crossover event. It's almost like, I don't even know what to call it, Mandalorians Assemble, Star Wars Assemble. It's like Avengers that that we'll ultimately (laughs) see, right, in in a few years here. But Mm -hmm. what are your overall thoughts about Season 3 and just how are you feeling about the future and just, you know, your optimism or possible skepticism with where things might go in the next few years? Yeah, I'll reiterate that uh, season three was fine for me. Again, a couple episodes that don't work for me. But the overall idea, I think, of the building, the culture of these Mandalorians, I think was really cool. And I think it was, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was important for somewhat of the future of Star Wars. I I actually will never forget watching um, uh, uh, Force Awakens. And there's a small Easter egg when they go see uh, Cass. And uh, uh, there's like a a Mandalorian flag and everyone's like wait a second we know what that is and this show Loki kind of feels like a uh I guess like a callback to that moment where it's like oh here's a whole show about these people (laughs) even though we just seen nothing but a flag and I think that's really cool that Star Wars can literally take a group of people that they've never really touched on and make a whole tv show about it and 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 I, I I love seeing that through line here I think in this season again where they just they find ways for to explain to us how the culture works with the mandalorians why bo katan is who she is why i don't know why the certain mandalorians don't like each other just the lore of those people i like that they 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 um they did that i i low-key wish this season had like four more episodes because to a lot of your point there's things in here where I, I really do just wish din Djarin and grogu had a little bit of more screen time had a little bit of more moments for us to say okay they had their moment you know what i'm saying so for us to say okay they did their thing uh and i think uh, uh we just talked about the name change of, of grogu and that adoption that adoption was fine and i i wish we didn't say that i wish we were like okay no they really earned that moment not saying they didn't but i wish it felt just a little bit more gravity behind it because we spent the time with those characters and I, we I, I feel like we didn't get that 100 percent. and part of me wishes there was a couple more episodes to be like okay we did get those moments. But other than that, man, I love the, the coming together of the, the Mandalorians. I love my own realization that, huh, the Mandalorian probably already is a uh, a a, um, a plural kind of thing. I, I, I love that as well. Uh, but, man, I, I this is probably, I don't know if least favorite is probably not the word. I have to go back and watch them all again. But it's a fine season. Of, of the Mandalorian. I still really like watching this TV show week to week. I still really love hearing the title song. It's something about it again that's like, it feels like a, I don't know, like a, every, every, a lot of good TV shows have a lot of good openings. And I still really love that Mandalorian opening, man. So overall, I think I'll still miss it. Again, I'll miss being like, oh, it's Mando Day or it's Mandalorian Day. Time to watch The Mandalorian in terms of my weekly Star Wars intake. Uh, but overall, it was a fine season. Uh, I hope. The next one is a little more focused um, because, yeah, and, and not as jumpy. We can get into some some more of this this nitty gritty. But until then, man, uh, I'm, it's still a show I enjoy. And I think 
they and I think they still have something with the Mandalorian, whether this 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 season was great or not. You know what I mean? I, I still think they have something here with these characters. So I hope they just continue to expand and give us some more uh, Star Wars that we enjoy. So, yeah, we'll have to see. Yeah, th- this is definitely my least favorite season. And, and I sort of think that it's it's really because of how much they're probably juggling at this moment, specifically Dave Filoni and maybe even John Favreau. I think sometimes when you expand out a world so much, when you have spinoffs and when you have this this overall grand vision of where you want to take multiple story arcs and multiple characters and, and storylines, um, sometimes those individual parts might suffer along the way. And I think that that's probably where we are right now. Whereas Mandalorian season one and two, those were kind of the only games in town when it came to Star Wars on Disney Plus specifically. They weren't tapping into Ahsoka just mm-hmm. just yet. They had just brought her back and introduced in, introduced our character, reintroduced our character. Bo-Katan, sort of the same mm-hmm. thing. And, and, and it's cool because characters like Bo-Katan and Ahsoka... I mean, we're paying off storylines that have been like almost decades in the making now. Like if you started with those characters in the Clone Wars and you see them now, like we're talking 16, 17 years worth of storytelling that they're really mm-hmm. starting to pay off. And, and, and it looks like they're going to do so in a bigger, grander way with with a crossover event movie. And that stuff is great. But I do think that for the time being where we are right now, because of that grand vision, because of all these disparate parts that have to be pulled together to make sense, I think that we lost a little bit of the magic that I experienced in those first two seasons. That's not to say it's bad. It had bad moments for sure, but there were some good moments still. There was some incredible mm-hmm. action, incredible spectacle, some great world building, some great mythology, and, and some great education about the Mandalorian culture and how deep they go and all the different different factions and, and tribes that are a part of a part of the Mandalorian and, and and some some bigger reveals as it relates to the antagonist and the villains of this particular era of the Star Wars timeline. So certainly stuff that I walk away from, like, I'm glad we got that. I'm glad that we got more clarity about that. I'm glad we got a chance to to peel back the curtain a little bit on this idea and hopefully they can pay it off later. But I do think that when you're juggling so much, it, it starts to affect what's right in front of us. And that's this 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 the season three that's immediate storyline that we're that we're just watching on a week to week basis. And, you know, it's one of those it's probably one of those necessary evils, you know, when when you do have something that's meant to lead to something bigger. I think we see it a lot with Marvel, where the individual parts, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, that didn't really come together how I wanted to because they have to do all this setup and this exposition for what's going to come next. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you make those sacrifices in, in, in service of the grand vision. The hope and the want is that the grand vision pays off, and, and that's a satisfying conclusion to everything that we're watching because if it's not, then this is all kind of done in vain for nothing. So I do still have a lot of hope and, and certainly excited about everything that is to come. I cannot wait for Ahsoka. I think that that's going to take things to another level because yeah. I think that that's where I think that's where all their focus is at right now. I think that that's why this season of The Mandalorian probably wasn't that great because Ahsoka low-key is going to be great. That's where we're that's where we're putting all our energy and effort into it. We see it all the time with producers mm-hmm. on TV when they get, when they build these empires and they have spinoffs and spinoffs and spinoffs. Eventually, the original show that kickstarted it all becomes terrible. It becomes like. I don't even recognize this anymore. And then the new spinoffs become like the new thing. We might be going through that with the Mandalorian. Hopefully they don't allow it to be terrible, but we'll have to see. But folks, those are all of our thoughts on season three of the Star Wars original series, The Mandalorian. If you've checked out these most recent episodes, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with all of that out the way, we're going to transition to the news of the week, which means it's probably about time that we address the Jonathan Major situation, which... um, we haven't talked about it yet on this podcast because there have been a lot of developments. There's still a lot of uncertainty. I do want to preface this conversation with that, that this is not yet resolved. There are many, many things still in flux. But what has currently happened is starting to take shape 
as it relates to Jonathan Major's career and potentially the outlook of his career in the immediate future. And so I want to just quickly recount where we are and just have a quick conversation about what this all might mean and where it may head for him in, in, mm-hmm. in his future career and just his livelihood, really, for the, for the immediate future. But if you don't know, Jonathan Majors was arrested about a month ago for assault charges, um, specifically for strangulation and assaults and harassment on a person who's presumed to be his girlfriend, at least at the time. We just also found out that that person, that woman, also worked on the set of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. She was a movement coach. And so they had a relationship, I presume, based off of meeting on the set of that film. But they were out one night in New York City. There was a police call that was made the next morning. Jonathan Majors was arrested. Quickly, Jonathan Majors' spokesperson and his lawyer came out in defense of him and has vehemently denied any charges, has said that he's done nothing wrong, and has also gone, gone as far as to say that we have proof that he is innocent of these crimes and that they apparently have two written statements from the woman who initially made the allegations, recanting those allegations. It's also been said that his arrest was pretty much just a a procedural thing, that because of the call, the nature of the call, he had to be arrested. That's what his lawyer certainly has proclaimed. And so that all sort of happened within the first 24 hours of the incident. And so it was happening pretty quickly. And then it went silent, I think, for about a few weeks here. We haven't really heard much. There were there were a few messages, again, coming out from his lawyer saying we have text messages from the woman, again, recanting the statements. Those text messages were also leaked online, I think, to TMZ. I did actually read those text messages, and you see you see messages of the woman sort of regretting the nature of the police call, regretting the fact that he was arrested. That's sort of what the text messages spoke to. But in that time since, Jonathan Majors has lost quite a few things as it relates to his career. He's lost a number of sponsorship opportunities. He's also lost a number of roles. So far, he had a sponsorship with the U.S. Army. They have paused all of their advertisements with him to see how this whole situation plays out. His management company, Entertainment 360, has released and, and, and dropped him essentially from their company. And also, their public relations arm has also severed ties with him. And he's been removed from a couple of movie projects. He was recently removed from the adaptation of the Walter Mosley novel, The Man in My Basement. He was going to produce that as well. And he was also previously in negotiations to star in a biopic about Otis Redding. But he has been removed from any consideration as it relates to that role. What's still currently up in the air is his status with Marvel, because that's probably the thing he's most well known for now. His depiction of Kang the Conqueror, in which we just saw him in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. He is supposed to be the big bad villain in Avengers Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars. We don't know about the status of those. He also will be appearing in Loki Season 2. That's already been shot. So unless they decide to reshoot that for whatever reason, that's going to come out with him in it. Um, And he's also attached to stars Dennis Rodman in a biopic that I think is going to be directed by Spike Lee. We don't know about the status of that and his relationship to the Creed franchise. So there's still a lot to be determined. And again, we don't know the direction of any of these charges. We don't know if he's innocent. We don't know if he's guilty. We're just kind of see this whole thing play out. But what I want to ask you is how do you feel about this whole situation as it relates to them, Jonathan Major specifically, and also how do you feel about the fallout that we've seen so far? Because I think history shows us that when the dominoes begin to fall in this way and when they begin to fall this fast, it's a really hard thing to stop that type of momentum when somebody hasn't necessarily been proven guilty but there seems to be enough there that causes a lot of pause and trepidation on the part of movie studios and companies and sponsorships to say, 
you know what, we really can't deal with this. We can't take on this type of liability right now. Even if you might be innocent, there's just so much around you that we don't want to really have that responsibility on our plate. So we're going to go ahead and sever ties. So what are your overall thoughts about the situation and just like where things are right now, even not knowing ultimately whether or not he's guilty or innocent of those charges? Man, it's 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 hard for me to have even a, I think, a sliver <laughs> of doubt isn't the word, but a sliver of hope that he did not do this. <laughs> and I think the main thing that got me was, you know, um, when he reportedly had been dropped by his management and PR team. Everything else before that was like, okay, I still don't know what's going on. I really don't know enough information yet. Um, and as as soon as that happened, I I in in my mind I had to I had to think now. To me, at that point, I was like, okay, he probably he probably did it until proven innocent. <laughs> That's when like everything is like, okay, that I think it's different because as a PR team. You have that is your job. You have one thing that you do, and that is to get people out of the pickle that this man is in. That is literally your job as a PR team. They left. They either they seen something, they know something that hasn't came out in in public eye yet, mm-hmm. or they've examined the situation and they were like, "We can't do nothing for you, bro," and left. That is the you literally get paid to fix that situation, and you literally told him you can't do it. Jonathan Majors, sorry, bro. Like you, you did it. <laughs> you're you're out of there, buddy. Um, and and that's how I feel about it. And there's no there's no I think empathy in my heart for for any kind of abuser or abuse. And I mean, to low key, that's really it. What a tremendous fall from grace. I think that that is Jonathan Majors, especially. Again, this 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 person who uh, we had been talking about very fondly on the podcast for a while. Literally, our very first Two Black Nerds movie night was uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. John, uh, I I really like Lovecraft Country. We were talking about Jonathan Majors there. We were excited about him being Kang. We really like his acting. And now uh, he's he. It's a problem. He's a problem for for Marvel. Um, not only that, to me, he is a problem to, I think, the the successful in black by way of interviews. This was very much a person who had was just painting himself as uh, uh, it, it, describing masculinity as actually something that's soft <laughs> and something that is is not defined by by how hard you are or lack of emotion and things like that. He was just wearing pink. In his uh, in his Dolph slash photography co- cosplay, Dolph is a, a character from One Piece, in which he modeled that pink uh, uh, photo shoot after. It, I, I it's kind of detrimental to the trust I think of black men, which was already hard to come by anyway, right? There's always something going on with these guys. It's always something going on with these successful celebrities in general, right? But black man, man, just be tearing up. And now Jonathan Majors, this person who again, was slowly creeping into everybody's life as somebody who, who who was a good actor, who was a figure that seemed unproblematic, is now 
the face of it in 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 some ways in a particular point in time of course like you said no, nobody's been convicted of anything yet per se but he was arrested his pr team was dropped marvel hasn't come out with anything yet but now he's instantly one of the biggest problems marvel has, has had to face that's a whole nother conversation you know what i mean to be had that they have to figure out now what to do do they how do they recast how do they they have they have to find something else to do. Loki is probably still coming out. He's going to be in it. You know what I'm saying? Like they they have so much to figure out. And now this man again, who I know me personally, I started trusting Jonathan Majors. He was becoming one of my favorite actors. I have to feel betrayed, and I think I feel I have the right to feel like that. I have the right to feel like, hey, this dude, I really trusted in this guy. And now there's like a period of grief I think that I'm having currently with this person. It's like, dang. We couldn't have this one good person we thought was good, and now we don't have him anymore. There's one more layer to this I want to add. This same energy, <laughs> you, I think you know where I'm going here, was not given to Ezra Miller, who has been very obviously already guilty of the things that he has done, versus Jonathan Majors, who, of course, again, right now, is not on paper guilty yet, but feels guilty. Feels we're definitely training in that direction. It has already been dropped from all these things. I do not remember all these reports about Ezra Miller coming out and them being like, Ezra Miller got dropped from this thing. His PR team gave up on this. This this man, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't, there's another layer here to where the black man has done something in the public guise very similarly to a white man if not really on less accounts <laughs> than this than this white man and is being punished a hundred times more there's another layer there that exists there too which is an entire another conversation but i had to bring it up like you can't not hear about jonathan major getting dropped by all these things and being like ain't the flash being showed in like two weeks you know what i'm saying like tonight it's just at CinemaCon, tonight it's being, showed, actually, yeah. it's being premiered yeah tonight as we're speaking about this and so it's it's just another yeah, there's layers to it. One, I've been betray betrayed by, again, what was seemingly a black man stepping into the light as somebody that we could look to as some sort of figure. Speaking up about black masculinity, he was a really good actor. We can't root on that anymore. Not that we always look to celebrities anyway for a lot of these things, but it's like, oh, this is a good dude. I like him. And now it's like, damn, we can't like him. That's 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 the betrayal. That's one, that's one layer. And then there's the second layer, man, where it's like this white person has done very worse things on way more multiple accounts and his movies being shown tonight but jonathan majors is reportedly being dropped from all these things i'm not mad that he's being dropped from all these things i just don't like the different treatment in in these two individuals it feels very yeah it's 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 obviously racist right to a, to a certain extent but it's a nut there's just it's just very multi-layered uh thing to to discuss and talk about so yeah those are my thoughts of course i have more thoughts i talked about a lot there but man, what is just a disappointing, I think, month when it comes to Jonathan Majors. Again, somebody we have been uh, rooting for, right? And so, yeah, it's it's just sad, man. Yeah, Ezra Miller was caught on tape strangling a woman. Like, literally, there's video proof out there. You could go watch it right now where he strangled a woman and nothing happened. He lost nothing. There were movies with him that still came out. We saw Fantastic Beasts. He's certainly one of the supporting players. He's the lead of The Flash. So... I, I think that there's absolutely different treatment happening here. And he's not the only example. There's many examples of white men who have done heinous things and have been. absolutely. They have been, you know, given a lot less in terms of a slap on the wrist compared to what Jonathan Majors is experiencing. We know that it's going to it's going to be 
10 times worse for a black man and don't even speak on behalf of a black woman. If, if there's ever something to, to level against them, if they do something wrong like that, that's just like your persona non grata at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we've seen this happen before. You know, there have been other figures in Hollywood that have, you know, black figures specifically that have gone through troubling times and they haven't really been able to bounce back. I think about uh, Nate Parker who did um, The Birth of a Nation back in 2017. Mm. He directed that yeah. movie and there were rape allegations that came out against him. He was presumably going to be like this force in Hollywood, this creative force. And and where is he? Where is he now? Who who's talking about him? The he was that 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 derailed his entire career, especially at the top of the Me Too movement. And and just like that was a firestorm around that that whole mm-hmm. thing happening. Um, Jonathan Majors here, man. It, it's it's shit. It's a shit situation. At first, it seems like you know maybe this had gotten to a place of being blown out of proportion, and maybe he. He still had an element um, of, of, of innocence to him, especially how quickly his lawyer responded. And I, I was thinking, honestly, at the yeah. time when this was all happening with the quick response of his lawyer and some of the messages that had come out, I was I was starting to think like, well, they might be able to they might be able to nip this in the bud pretty quickly. And then it just went dead silent for like weeks. Like we had heard nothing. And I was just curious, like, well, if the lawyer feels so confident that he's going to get exonerated of all these charges, Where's all this evidence and proof that we've been talking about that we've been floating like mm-hmm. we're going to be able to prove his his innocence two times over. And then all of a sudden, a recent report comes out that multiple other victims in other assault and abuse abuse cases have come forward and are allegedly cooperating with the with the district attorney's office. You add that on top of the fact that his management and PR firm dropped him. Like those two things happened within a 24 hour period. That's where the signals went off like, uh oh. People know something that we don't know. People have some information that we publicly do not have yet. That's why these things are happening so quickly compared to when it all went down initially. I think we were all just still searching for the facts. We were hoping it wasn't true. We were hoping that Jonathan Majors wouldn't commit these atrocious crimes. And we also would hope that the victim in, in that incident would be okay, that they weren't you know, damaged beyond repair and, 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 and had gone through something that was just you know utterly terrible. But now when you just... You bring together all these things that are coming out now. I mean, it, it paints him in a pretty bad picture. And we know the court of public opinion, the reality is he is guilty until proven innocent. He he now has to fight upwards. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the perspective of Jonathan Absolutely. Majors considering all these things that have happened. I don't know if that's necessarily right or wrong, but that's just the way things are. That's, that's how this day and age operates, especially mm-hmm. with social media and how quickly information gets out there, even if he has to still undergo uh, an actual trial if they don't decide to settle something outside of court. But... um. I think overall, when looking at this, it's very disappointing because even if he is innocent, I mean, the 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 aura around him just won't be the same because of this whole incident. Like, he just won't mm-hmm. look the same. It won't feel Absolutely. the same. This guy was next mm-hmm. up. Like, he was, he was going to be this generation's... I mean, they were painting him to be, like, this generation's Denzel Washington. Like, imagine if this yeah. happened to Denzel Washington in, like... 1994 when he was on his ascendance like when he was becoming the guy like the preeminent actor especially black actors imagine if something like this to this degree had happened to them and all of a sudden all those hopes and dreams just got dashed that's kind of what's happening with jonathan majors um so so who knows you know what these next few weeks will hold but there are a lot of problems to to be solved you talked about marvel i mean disney as a whole has a big problem because they already have slated his next feature film magazine dreams for a theatrical release which is going to be distributed by Searchlight Pictures, which Disney owns. They have a release date for that in theaters. I'm questioning if that's going to happen anymore. That might go straight to Hulu now yeah. if this 
if this doesn't shape mm-hmm. up to be something that can be rectified and he can be exonerated and then just the the head spin with marvel i mean they have marvel has just had shit luck lately the, the, the <laughs> marvel <laughs> i mean i you know i don't want to discredit everything that the you know the victims have gone through but like when you when you factor in marvel their past like six seven eight months have been probably the worst streak in the company's history between this situation between the victoria alonzo stuff that we just talked about a few weeks ago mm-hmm. obviously the public perception of where marvel is right now and now their franchise player is probably not going to be in their movies the movies that they were going to build around for him their two biggest movies probably in history now they have to recast and find somebody who's going to fill that role and step into those big shoes i don't envy that yep. at all it, it's a really 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 tough predicament to be in for all parties involved but we'll have to just stand by and see what what the facts of the of the case will present us over the next few weeks and and see how it all shapes out but speaking of marvel we should keep moving here and just talk about our other news item of the week something a little bit more positive at least hopefully if this turns out to be true but rumors are saying that the fantastic four movie has found its reed richards and apparently it's Adam Driver. All signs reporting to Adam Driver being Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards in Marvel Studios' Fantastic Four movie, which we know they are currently developing and will be released at the top of 2025. There are still yet to be any sort of rumors or confirmations about other cast members. Of course, this, this is a team, so we have three other primary major roles to fill. But Adam Driver looks to be the guy. Daniel RPK on Twitter, who breaks a lot of pretty reliable information first talked about this it was also corroborated by a few other sources who are pretty reliable and have inside information i listened to the hot mic podcast they talk a lot about this stuff and 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 the main guys on there corroborated this information it says like yeah he has an offer he's in final talks so unless something breaks down completely it it appears that adam driver is going to be our reed richards what do you think about this is this a good choice do you like adam driver in this role and how do you think this also fares for maybe the rest of the cast and what that might shape out to be because we still just have no idea about that but i don't even know if adam driver is a choice really tells me where they're going with this casting because i mean he's a great actor but i don't know (laughs) if it really gives us any other information about who's going to be you know human torch or susan storm or or the thing so what are your Mm -hmm. overall thoughts about adam driver stepping into this role man i it's okay it's fine i wish i was like more excited about it (laughs) Uh, but I, I think he has the stature of a Reed Richards. Um, and I think, of course, it's Adam Driver. He has the acting chops down packed, right? He could do whatever the hell I think he wants to do. I, I think something about me wanted a casting with slightly less star power than Adam Driver has. Adam Driver has a lot of star power, bro, between Kylo Ren, between, shoot, all the marriage story memes or whatever came out of that. Um, he just has a, he has a, he just has a lot of he just has a lot of uh star power and so it it I think that could be one of the driving forces for for them going after Adam Driver though, was them being like, "Oh, okay. Ari Richards needs to be somebody you know, somebody prominent, but I, for some reason, I don't know. I was still expecting somebody a slightly less known than Adam Driver was, but overall, I like it. It's Adam Driver. You know what I'm saying? This dude is, again, he's one of the best actors working right now. Um, and he's going to give you, I think, what you want uh, uh, out of out of Reed Richards, man. Like I said, I think he has a stature. He's a very tall guy. I can easily see where they make his hair into the, the Reed Richards grayness kind of cut thing I, I'm, I'm i'm down for it i really am i'm down for it i just wish i was a little more excited that's all but overall i'm i'm, I'm here for it 
so I got to admit, I love this. I think that this is incredible. Um, Adam Driver, I, I do believe, is one of the world's best actors, the best current, currently working actors right now in terms of like his generation and, and, and who he's a mm-hmm. part of. I, I mean, the guy has built such a phenomenal resume over the years. People don't really talk about it enough. He's worked with the best filmmakers alive. He's worked with Steven Spielberg and Steven Soderbergh and Noah Baumbach and J.J. Abrams and Ridley Scott. Like he he has done yeah. Martin Scorsese even. Like he's he's already done quite a lot. Now 65, which we talked about, I'm not ever gonna really Oh boy. I'm not ever really gonna give that 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 too much credit. That's not a great choice per se, but by and large, man, Adam Driver has shown his ability to be versatile, his ability to be funny, dramatic, angry, unpredictable. His stature and his physical presence yeah. is incredible. The guy's like, what, 6'4", 6'5". He's built. He looks incredible oh, in pretty much everything mm-hmm. that he does. I think that he 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 totally brings the gravitas that you need for Reed Richards because Reed Richards is the smartest man in the Marvel Universe. Like You need somebody that's going to be able to, to hold his own, especially when you have a Robert Downey Jr. who was phenomenal was Tony Stark and made you believe in the idea that he was Tony Stark. So for Adam Driver to come in and I think almost be sort of the successor, at least in the MCU, not in comics, but in the MCU, sort of be the successor possibly to what mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr. established with Iron Man. Cause I, I, I believe that Reed Richards is going to have to be the, probably be the focal point of like the next 10 years of what they do. He's going to be very, very integral. So I think you got to, you got to have somebody that has those chops that, that can really hold it down. That can, that can act pretty much with anybody on screen and give you all sorts of different types of performances. And so I, I really love this. The only thing that would have probably made me more excited was if they went with the Dr. Doom route. A lot of people had pegged him for Dr. Doom as opposed to Reed Richards, um, which would have been cool. I mean, we, we but we've seen him be a bad guy before. We've seen him do Kylo Ren. So I actually like That's him going the opposite direction and say, like, I'm going to be the hero this time and not just play the bad guy once again. So I, I, I'm really in love with this choice. I think it's incredible. But but will what will be key is who who is also standing next to him, who they fill out for sue storm mm-hmm. and the thing and human torch like that's going to be equally as important and, and to your point i'm very interested to see if they go after really recognizable people just like they did with adam driver or do they fill out the rest of the cast with maybe lesser known people or maybe they they split it maybe maybe sue storm is a is a hugely mm. recognizable actress and then you know possibly human torch and the thing <laughs> might be Blood. a little bit lesser known uh <laughs> Well, doesn't that kind of go out the window now? <laughs> since John Krasinski isn't gonna, I, I guess, do yeah, no, I, I, I mean, constellation, they, they, constellation. They, that's true. They still, they could, they can make it work. I mean, she's that great. She, they can still make it work. But we'll have to see. You know, this this movie is certainly moving very, very fast here. I think you know, hopefully, within the next few weeks here, we have a little bit of a better idea as, as to who fills out the rest of the cast. But Adam Driver, I think you're in good hands with him leading your film. But mm-hmm. folks, that's all we got for this episode of Two Black Nerds. Thank you again for tuning into another podcast we will indeed be back next week because we're going to do a retrospective of the guardians of the galaxy and their time in the marvel cinematic universe that's right to prepare for the release of marvel studios guardians of the galaxy volume 3 we're going to look back and reminisce on all the good times and maybe even some of the bad times with the guardians and the mcu from their first feature film which really kick-started this new era of marvel storytelling all the way to their appearances in other films like avengers infinity war and thor love and thunder we're going to recap it all and give our thoughts on their journey thus far in anticipation for guardians of the galaxy volume 3 so certainly be on the lookout for 
for that episode coming next week. And until then, we'll see y'all next time. Yes, sir. We are Audi 5000. And remember, always bet on black. Appreciate y'all. Love y'all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Two Black Nerds. Where we're too black, too nerdy. And we out, y'all. Peace. Y'all don't hear me. I want the money right. Ruby Tony, no face killer. I see the money right.